Welcome to Source of Uncertainty, a Bukla podcast for you. I'm Robert Standifer. And I'm Kyle Swisher. And this is episode 29, the Christmas episode, sort of. Because <laughs> Christmas yeah. is uh, Saturday. Merry Christmas uh, last week. Yeah. Well, we're in the 12 days of Christmas, according to a Twitter meme I saw today. But yeah, it starts afterwards, right? Yeah. I, um, I don't know. I like the song, but I'm tired of Christmas music and I'm ready to take my tree down and turn off the lights and <laughs> get on with my life. But you know, it yeah. snowed a lot here um, in the Seattle area. Kyle, as you know, um, I love snow. It was really neat to see my Christmas lights outside. I've got the old school incandescent kind, you know, they get hot. Mm-hmm. And so, oh, yeah, so they start melting the snow around it. <laughs> it was melted the snow in the gutters. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it, but it reflecting off the snow in my front yard was it was really pretty. I thought, yeah, this is nice. And yeah, we ha- how quiet it is when it snows. We have this like uh, in our backyard, these like long string of, of, of ones that are just in the yard. They're just kind of upturned. Um, and so those kind of melted the snow around them. So they all had like a little, you know, moat around each one of them. <laughs> Looks good. A little Christmas moat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have it? So do you have a good Christmas? And Kyle and I, we haven't chatted since, since last week or so. So kind of yeah. Up. Yeah. Christmas, uh, was just dandy. Um, nice. yeah, I don't know. Saw a lot of family, a lot of family time that, there's still kind of like family coming in or that are in town that will still be seen probably throughout the next week through New Year's. But, um, but yeah, all good. You? Yeah, we, um, it was just me and Zoe, my wife, um, uh, and this family couldn't come because of COVID. They're all old. Zoe's mm-hmm. an only child. And so her mom and her grandparent and granddad is, you know, they're old. So anyway, so we opened presents. It was really fun. So he got me a breaker bar, which is this tool that I need for my Jeep for removing the bumpers. So I was pretty awesome. excited about that. Yeah. Then we saw the new Spider-Man away from mm-hmm. home. No, no way home. I get it confused with the dog's journey, dog's way home, dog's purpose movies. It's like Spider-Man's <laughs> purpose, Spider-Man's way home, a dog's journey home. I don't know. They all run together. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's far from no way home. No, no way home. That's it. Anyway, I saw that one. Nailed it. Yeah, we saw that on Christmas as well. Yeah, man, I've watched so many movies since going on vacation. When I was in Hawaii, we had watched a movie every night just to kind of chill out in the room. Watched Venom, and I mean, they're all running together now. I saw the new Carnage Venom sequel, and I thought you want a, a Chris on only uh, Christmas movies kick. Well, that was before we went to Hawaii, and then mm. our choices. That was not part of the rules that you had uh, bestowed upon me. It was impossible because the the hotel that we stayed at only had a DVD kiosk. Like, not Blu-ray, but a DVD kiosk. Yeah. And the pickings were slim. So (laughs) Mixed Nuts was already, uh, yeah, checked out. They did have Christmas Vacation, but we'd already watched that one a million times. So, yeah, it's good to be... In the last week of the year, I go back to work next Monday. I got lots of stuff to do, so kind of like kind of nice to turn the corner. You know what I mean? Yeah. Kind of the new year coming. And... Yeah, I had like a more eventful kind of like beginning of the month 
or so. Like, I got to play a mod, uh, Modular Knights. Oh, yeah. How was that? Um, it was good. Um, I was definitely nervous having not like, played out seriously in the past two plus years or so. Um, yeah, you're, you're definitely played out. <laughs> <laughs> For, yeah. No doubt about that. Oh, you mean playing out. Oh, yeah. I get it. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was good to see, uh, you know, some friends uh, in the flesh. And um, and yeah, I didn't really, between like this monster episode we got ahead of us um, that we're presenting right now, um, it just kind of like between the time signing up for it and doing all this and and going on another trip right afterwards it was kind of like oh i don't have that much time <laughs> to yeah. prep and usually it's like i don't know for performances I, I i have it all choreographed down to the note and everything and so this uh, i just kind of had to abandon that and uh went for more of like a kind of like that base patch approach that we had oh yeah yeah talked about last year um just a, a version of that because I'm like you know my system has changed a bit since then, but it was kind of you know finding a couple things um, that I can transition between and you know <laughs> pull some minutes out of and stuff. So it was it was good. I had, I had a lot of fun. That's cool. Yeah, I um I used the control and signal router a lot for this episode, and it ended up being mm. kind of essential because. Uh, switching between you know the module that we're talking about today is has a lot of one of the modules anyway it has a ton of inputs and outputs and i was <laughs> getting so confused pulling out patch cables so i created <laughs> a base patch with the control and signal router and reminded me of how much i love that module mm -hmm. and uh it's so easy to route stuff kind of makes me want to grab the old Skylab and go out to modular nights in seattle maybe after this omicron variant stuff is over uh, we still have a few letters left in the in the Greek alphabet, but I'm hoping yeah. that we skip them like we do when there are hurricanes, you know? It's never like A, B, C, D, E, F, G with hurricane names. Right. So I'm kind yeah. of hoping it's well, like that. That's how naive I am about how the world works, by, by the way. <laughs> and as you know, you know, they, there's just been tons of time between variants and stuff, you know, so. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I guess. Yeah. yeah. It'll be a two-week opening where uh, you might feel comfortable enough to go do it, yeah. Yeah. Well, speaking of my great misfortune, I decided <laughs> to remaster um, my first album, Fallen into Atmosphere, which I released under my Mutir and, um, I guess, brand, mm -hmm. which is the kind of space themed dark ambient album. And, you know, when I made that, I, I just made it because I wanted to make it. And so it's the mastering and everything is not good. So I thought, I'm going to remaster this and release it to all the folks that bought it on Bandcamp. Well, I lost the original recordings. Um, mm. I think that in the course of backing up a hard drive, I, I don't know, I didn't pay attention. I, something Somehow I accidentally deleted them. So Sony won't be paying me $500 million for my back catalog. <laughs> lost. So I had to go to Bandcamp create a new account under a different email address, buy my album <laughs> to get the, <laughs> the lossless. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. So I got most of it, I guess a big chunk of it back. I should have waited until they have that no fee. <laughs> the, 
bonus for artists. But anyway, <laughs> so I'm I imported them into Studio One and have started remastering. So it's really not like a remix. It's really more of just improving the volume and doing some declipping and you know just some goofy stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But on a couple of tracks, there's some sound missing. So I'm adding in some additional um, sounds on some of the tracks. So that's been pretty fun. That'll just release that to the folks that have bought it on Bandcamp and I'll make it available for free. But it's really interesting to look back two years ago, mm-hmm. which is when that album came out, March of 2019, and look at how much I've learned in that time. Because it doesn't seem like very long ago, but it's almost three years. Yeah, I was going to say, almost three years, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so it wasn't two years, but it's really almost three years ago. But that's been really fun to listen to that, cringe a little bit at some of the goofy stuff, <laughs> and then kind of be impressed with it at the same time, because I think, how the hell did I make that sound? That is so cool. <laughs> how did I do that? I don't know how I... <laughs> you know what I mean? I can't recreate yeah. that patch. Yeah. It. <laughs> so, well, you know, it's lost to the ages, kind of like the, the whole death dream thing. But that's... um. That's pretty cool. And I'm doing something similar with Seven Dot Waves, uh, which doesn't need a remaster so much as it does a remix based on lots of feedback I received from fans of the album and have asked me, oh, can you do more of this? And can you add that? And it'd be really cool if you had this other thing. So I'm adding that in for a remix version of it, which will be called Seven Dot Waves, parentheses, one, parentheses. Because <laughs> you know when you make a... <laughs> A copy of a file and just adds that one. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't think I'll actually do that, but that, that just came to me. Hey, you, um, you went to the Vintage Synthesizing Museum in LA, right? I did. I played with the CS80. What was yeah. That? that was, I mean, that specifically was, um, that instrument specifically was pretty amazing because I don't know, that's one of those ones that's like, I'll never see that in person. Like I'll never get to, to play that thing. And um, yeah, it was sweet. And it was already, you know, basically set up on the, um, you know, Vangelis um, Blade Runner uh, theme patch. So that's nice of them. Yeah. So just, you know, just kind of let it rip for a bit and, and, you know, play with that, uh, ribbon controller, which is like velvet, which was, I didn't know that. Yeah. Nor did I, I was like, Ooh, this feels nice. Like, <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah, it was, yeah, it was sweet. It was like a mile away. The place was just a mile away from, uh, where I was staying with some friends and, um, and I'd seen some people start to talk about it. It used to be up in the Bay Area, and yeah, it's in Oakland. Yeah, and so they moved down here in the last seven, you know, few months. Uh, but yeah, they had a lot of a lot of cool stuff. I only spent like an hour there and just kind of and had my friends there uh, with me, so we all just kind of poking around on stuff. And but there was like, yeah, there's this Electrocomp um <laughs> section yeah. where they had yeah, several stuff yeah and they had these big uh, these bigger cabinets i were like had these big sequencers and um just yeah stuff i had never seen before and it was i don't know i was drawn to that for some reason i think because just it's it's size i'd always seen kind of the other things that were you know mini moog kind of sized but yeah that was cool yeah. and 
He's got some great uh, stuff in, in in the Oakland location. I don't know LA. I haven't followed it much, but he had record has recording studios where you can actually record. You know, yeah, stuff with the vintage synthesizers for your album, which is pretty amazing, and it's cheap yeah. too, if I recall. Yeah, yeah, you you can. It's all like it's like everything's on, everything's set up, and you can bring your laptop or whatever you're going to record on and kind of plug it in and go. So it's yeah, so it's like this museum, this interactive museum slash studio yeah, in a way. Bad. So the labor of love because poor guy has to fix all that stuff all the time. <laughs> Keep that stuff going. Yeah. yeah. It was funny when I got there. Um, he was like, you've been here before. And I was like, no. And, uh, and he's like, Oh, okay. Like we've like emailed or something in the past. And then that's, and then like the name kind of sounded familiar. And then I realized like, Oh yeah, I had traded him my like Lyra eight for a two ninety two and a two seventy seven. <laughs> a couple oh, wow. years ago and uh cool. yeah i sold him my um you know that add-on thing for the easel uh i forgot what it's called all of a sudden oh the, the big the big box the i the i program card or no, the meta no. well i sold yeah i did sell him my i program card too actually but the meta expander that was it the meta 406 mm -hmm. or 416 or yeah meta 416 yeah. i sold that to the vintage synthesizer museum guy whose name escapes me at the moment and my i program card and um <laughs> then he then he sold both later so i guess he was just as frustrated with them as I was. <laughs> yeah there was there was no buchla stuff there it sounded <laughs> like um it sounded like several things uh did go just to you know keep things afloat during uh covid and to help fund the move and stuff too yeah. so yeah. um so yeah if you're in the los angeles area that go check it out it's very cool i was down there to um go see a show um uh blue tech that put out my um my album last year was putting on a show there and lisa Del belladonna was playing and some other people on the label so it was a good excuse to go down there for a weekend and um yeah hang out with some friends and like actually see these people in person that i've only known through the internet so that was it was a good uh yeah good short time that's good i, I look forward to doing that more when things are somewhat back to normal <laughs> and you, you just never I, yeah it's tough like i arguably like should i have gone and done you know taking the flight and stuff i guess it's all based on what your uh, individual yeah um uh, i think I'm, I'm like expressly disallowed from going to see some of the people i want to see because the country won't let me in coming from the u.s like i can't go to, can't go to yeah yeah i can't go to germany you know mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah yeah there's a i have a good friend of mine who is sort of my conduit to famous people so i don't know the famous people but he knows them all and so he's always saying like hey we should go do xyz with this this famous person i'm doing this and that and i can never go because it's always in you know berlin or somewhere mm. in europe that he's able to freely travel to but, but i'm not because of covid I'm like man i would totally go to berlin to hang out with you know the founders of ableton and, the, and to go to, <laughs> to go to the apple mogard show and, and all this stuff oh man and then of course once this is over that'll all dry up <laughs> there will be no more right 
Speaking of, um, I guess, Berlin. Is that a good side? No, wait. Let's wait. Let's hold on to that. There's one other thing before we go there. UK. We got to talk about England for a minute. Our old buddy, um, uh, Daniel from Dunnington Audio, uh, has just put out his version of the 230 triple envelope filter. Um, so the 230D follower, sorry. Um, and I don't know if y'all remember, or you should go back and listen to that episode, but, um, he really, he used that, the 230 in a pretty cool way, like setting up when he would play live, he would set up microphones throughout the venue. And so just audience kind of interaction and sounds being happened there would affect his, uh, the patch that he had going on and. That sounded like a cool way to um, to do it, and I think it kind of mentions, you know, this was on his short list of things to um, to make for himself, and so um, so yeah, that's now available at thebeast.co.uk where you can get the um, the PCB and the panel for it. Um, I think just that's in good. general, yeah, like he. Um, he kind of put buffers like on, I think like the pulse output so you can kind of bridge those pulse outputs and put them into like a single input. Um, and uh, yeah, just kind of adjusted some, some things like that on it, but yeah, go out to, to that website to check that out. Um, okay. Back to Berlin. Yes. Which our guest is, by way of Brooklyn <laughs> is living there is, uh, is Mark Verbos. Yeah, this was kind of a, this is one of our big goals on the show. You know, I mean, we love every guest we've ever had, of course. Of course. Some of them, I want them to come back many times. But Mark, getting Mark on the show was heavily requested and was really, really exciting for him to um, to take the time. And I'll I'll tell you now, you will barely hear my voice in that entire interview. Because (laughs) Mark started talking about you know, his, his experience in the Buchla world is deep, like obviously deep, but way deeper than I thought, or that I had any inkling. So he talks a lot about this historical stuff. And I just sat and listened to the entire time. I didn't, I don't think I even asked a question. I just <laughs> grunted a couple of, mm-hmm, yeah. I, I just deleted your, uh, yeah, your audio for, <laughs> yeah, just cut it. Because I didn't say anything. So don't take that as lack of interest. It was just simply like I was at a TED talk. And yeah. um, I'm just going nodding my head when the camera was on me. You know, <laughs> we're watching TED talk, there's always that guy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> but man, what a I, I wish I could have stayed on another two hours and just heard, you know, the second half of his story. Yeah, well definitely. Then, yeah, yeah. Yeah. We we we're, yeah, did chat for about two hours, and there's still so much more that we weren't able to get into. But I mean, it's just yeah. yeah, it was, um, you know, if you're not familiar with, I mean, I think most are probably familiar with his um, his modules, either on his Buchla versions of um, the stuff that he does, or his Eurek modules from Verbos Electronics. Um, but he had this uh, blog. Um, kind of started in the late 2000s called buklatech.blogspot.com and um and that's i don't know like for me that's kind of a that's a source that i i revisit all the time yeah 
and um you know he was a a a nerd on another level from us because he actually is like (laughs) could tinker around with these things and and make these things work and um pull some really cool information uh from these modules that we you know geek out about so yeah and he has the classic right place at the right time part of the story Mm -hmm. too yeah you know where where he was living when he was living there whom he met i mean it's just like yeah yeah it's it's pretty wild yeah so we're excited for you to check that out before then we uh got to check out two of his modules um the harmonic oscillator uh, model 262v and the quantized shift register model 263v shout out to uh, michael lasloff and john blackford that uh both lent us those modules um super generous super generous yeah allow us to to do that because uh yeah we don't own everything and uh (laughs) Some of this stuff's hard to find too. Yeah, yeah, especially <laughs> this stuff. So, uh, so yeah, it was very cool to to kind of give these a spin. Um, and then you went on a deep dive on uh, shift registers. I did. I had a lot of fun diving into shift registers and analog shift registers, and sort of going down the path of uh, understanding them beyond, you know, the, of of how to use them. Cause I have a bunch of analog shift registers in my Eurorack system. And, you know, you don't really think about how they work. You just, you know, behind the scenes, how they work. You just know what you want to do with them. Although it's fun to geek out on the modules too. Mm -hmm. And I discovered, well, I, I discovered something that I kind of already knew, but I put the dots together, but I, the, the uh, analog shift register module that fortune created for Barry Schrader which I think we've talked about in two up two interviews now, full spoiler alert, but <laughs> I think that might be the truly be the first analog shift register module in for electronic music instruments in 1972. Maybe there was one created for another modular system that I'm not aware of. I'm, you know, I'm always willing to accept that I'm wrong about something, but I think that that's the earliest one. And then Surge used, uh, created them for the surge system, I think for the Tonto system as well, a little bit later, because of that whole CalArts thing. Yep. But the, um, you know, you and I were, when I was at your house, we were like, what's a shift register and what's an analog shift register and are they different? And here's what I, here's my theory, or here's my, my, my theory in terms of like gravity theory, meaning it's <laughs> going to be true until something major disproves it, <laughs> which is... So a shift register, and I'll try to be brief because this episode's already like 18 hours long. <laughs> a shift register in computing, you know, it, it was how um, computers in the 60s and 70s that provided the memory capability for those computers. It was replaced by random access memory, which is what we have now. So a shift register would have a number of bits, like four bits, which means it would have one input and four outputs. And as you streamed binary data to it, ones and zeros, the the first bit and the first one or zero would go into the first register. Then when it received a clock signal from, it would shift that bit to the next register and take the new bit in and so on. And there's some technical stuff like that's called a word and, and, and all this stuff, but basically it would hold, 
information in memory by shifting it through the register. And then on the fifth pulse, it would drop off that bit. Mm -hmm. So that was a, 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 that's a circuit, basically a digital computers. So I was like, well, what's an analog shift register? Why did fortune call this an analog shift register? Why is that stuck? I think it really means that the data coming into the shift register is a range of control voltages in the case of Buchla zero to 10 volts, not binary, AKA digital information. Because in the shift mm -hmm. register in a computer, it's a one or a zero, it's an on or an off. But in a, an analog shift register, it's any any voltage really of um, of any resolution between whatever the range is minus five to five, zero to ten, whatever you you know whatever the system is. Mm -hmm. So that's my theory. If an astute listener a thinks that I'm brilliant and that's an, an incredible thing to come up with on my very own, <laughs> I appreciate that. Or if you have a different point of view, then by all means you know, share it because it's uh, fascinating stuff. But I, I read about Barry's use. Of course, we've talked to him about it <clears throat> and how he needed to do it. He needed it for his canonic compositions. Surges and analog shift registers were numerous and used for making arabesque patterns in music. And mm -hmm. um, then, you know, and here we are and they're, they're ubiquitous. I have it in voltage modular, the, uh, you know, the VST, modular system. Mm -hmm. I've got them everywhere. But the the verbose one was particularly interesting to use because it's in my my Buchla system, which is much more constrained than all of my other stuff. Mm -hmm. It's like I only have so many oscillators. In a voltage modular, I could add 120 oscillators if I wanted to <laughs> with yeah. you know, 60 analog shift registers. But here I had to be super creative about tuning them and, and all that stuff so it was um it was really fun and i think man barry didn't have google to go <laughs> look up the stuff he just had to kind of figure it out and uh, use his noggin but yeah the, the whole reading synapse magazine from 1976 that people have uploaded which is awesome i want to read every issue now and kind of seeing how the circuits work and the picture of Barry's module, which I believe Grant Richter owns now. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, man, what a what a rabbit hole I went into and was like spending <laughs> hours reading all of that stuff to make a 30 minute segment in which I don't mention any of that. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and here we are. That's where you get to and get it in. And and I guess we should mention when we're uh, we bit off a lot on this episode. I mean, trying to kind of feature two modules that do wildly different <laughs> things, and you know, kind of just weaving it in between the holidays and and everything else going on um, in our lives. So uh, we did the first section with the harmonic oscillator uh, in person at my house. And then uh, we kind of tried to do some <laughs> shift register stuff, but realized that it it maybe needed uh, some more time in the oven. So um, so Robert took uh, that one home, and uh, and so w we act like we're going to kind of talk about it um, and yeah. later on as you'll hear. But it'll zoom over yeah. to Robert in his domain. Magic of special effects. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that um, was, uh, yeah. Well, you should tell the truth about what happened that day. Um, oh, yeah. There's, I mean, <laughs> no, I don't want to. I mean, let's just say technical difficulties flying everywhere. 
we'll, so. we'll record a special thing just for the Patreon <laughs> that tells the story of of what happened on that fateful <laughs> afternoon. <laughs> yeah, if you just want, you know, yeah, the stories of pain in your ears, you can tune in for that. Yeah. All right. Like like you said, this thing, uh, this is probably going to be definitely a three hour tour. So um, at least strap in. You can take all month to listen to this one and um it's worth it though i promise oh yeah yeah this was a, a great talk with mark so um but before that let's get into the modules all right robert we're here it's uh it's verbose month yeah happy verbose <laughs> we've got the harmonic oscillator model 262v and the quantize shift register or quantizer slash shift register model 263. And it's not an analog shift register. Yeah, we were... Um, which is t- totally okay. Yeah, you know, digital, because it then says just shift yeah. register. I think you mentioned that like in the shifty, it's just a shift register Yeah, because it's digital. But we say analog. analog shift register because that's just how we... It's one of those things. Yeah um we'll talk about that in a bit i'm super excited about that one yeah we'll kind of run through the harmonic oscillator first uh you had this in your Eurorack days yep and it was almost the same size as this I it was three u not four but and maybe slightly narrower because it had maybe i think it might have even been the same size even though it only had eight mm. of the mm-hmm. harmonics as opposed to ten but the knobs were in different places and it also had red knobs yeah, because it got had the red, black, and gray kind yep. of. And the real Rogan knob, not that horrible puck, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which is the only thing that ruins my. It's the only reason I don't want to come over here. <laughs> all the, the pucks, all the pucks. Yeah, I'm like, at least they're not Davies. Yeah, but the, <laughs> so, but the beautiful module though, I I was looking at the panel. First of all, it looks brand new. Yeah. So and it's ten years old, but the panel is very very. It matches your Marf really well, I and mean, just the kind of the shade of the mm-hmm. of the metal. It's really attractive. It looks like a very professional module. I've never seen one in real life until today, so it was pretty cool. Yeah, and there's just not as much. I mean, there's a ton of Eurac harmonic oscillator like yeah. videos and stuff out there on the internet, and so especially with both these things, I'm excited that we get a chance to play with these because I've never seen the. Uh, quantizer slash shift register in action yeah that, that i don't like the look of that module but we'll get into that a little, <laughs> a little bit later no it's it's great it's just as a panel layout is kind of weird um so yeah we've got um i guess to kind of break down if you haven't seen the the uh, eurorack harmonic oscillator it's pretty similar just like robert mentioned there's two more harmonics the other one is just eight um it kind of, it looks like it takes um, there was a harmonic oscillator in the 100 series that just had a frequency knob and then 10 out single outputs yeah um, you could run those into like a mixer or um, gates and then kind of play those things um, and where this kind of brings functionality from like the uh, 296 kind of spectral processor where you're um, you know, scanning through these harmonics, like you do scan yeah. through the frequencies. And then the bringing in the, the harmonics with like the sliders. Yeah. Just similar to my experience with the 296E. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You move your finger up and down. 
and and individual VCAs for them, and um, on the 200 series, there's individual outputs for each frequency on the 296, and there's individual outputs here on the um, on the harmonic oscillator. Um, the s individual outputs uh, are not tied to the VCA that's set up for each of those, or the slider. It's just constant voltage or signal out. Um, I you know. I think it would be cool if you could somehow like have a switch or something to tie yeah. those things to it. Otherwise, like if you're looking to um, send those out throughout the system and want them to be dynamic, you're going to have to use up a lot of um, mm -hmm. uh, low pass gates Yep, to kind of get that going. But two, two ninety twos at least. <laughs> two, to give, yeah. Two and you, a half. Yeah. Gives you eight of the, <laughs> of the 10. Um, and then, but what, uh, what it does give you is this kind of summed output where you can get all of these harmonics into one output using the sliders, uh, the CV inputs, and then the section below, which we'll talk about in a second. I think I think that output is labeled final oh. on the, mm -hmm. the Eurek one, but I, I might be misremembering that. Mm -hmm. But it is final on the 259, so that probably would. But yeah, it's the, the okay. sum of all of those harmonics. Mm -hmm. um, with the VCAs in series. Yep. Yeah. And then it also has four other outputs, which is sawtooth, triangle, square, and then kind of like a spike or a pulse uh, yeah. output. And uh, in, in uh, Mark's blog, he kind of notes that it's similar to what the uh, what the kind of sawtooth or spike wave is on the uh, music e easel in the complex oscillator section. Um, it's a pulse wave. Well, the graphic is a pulse wave with the pulse width. Yeah, very really narrow. Really, very narrow, yeah. Okay, this is the spike. Listen to this, listen. So many harmonics in there. But like nasally at the same time. And the clicks. Yeah, and then so doing the sliders won't do anything because there are no harmonics coming out. Yeah, we're not into yeah. that main output. So that's cool. So let's switch over to that main output. Um, I, what do you think you could do with that spike wave? What would you do with that? Filter you know, it and yeah, um, I had it. I had a whole patch set up, which I recorded. Maybe I'll have that be the last uh, over the the yeah. outro of this thing but i had um i use a lot of these outputs and then um use different envelopes and stuff like that and different rhythms out of that so that thing just came was just a very long kind of sweeping yeah. um envelope and uh since i got my 2070 that's really like swirling that that portion around that's kind of fun um and then it's using like the the sawtooth wave at the same time and as well as the final so Mm -hmm. A lot going on, but it was kind of cool just to use one oscillator and get all these different sounds out of it. Um, so yeah, let's move on to the actual harmonics section. So we've got these sliders that we can... I guess we can get our like fundamental yeah. one going. And then you can just start...
dense. What did you call it? You didn't say edgy. You didn't say rough. What did you say? Rich. Rich. <laughs> Harsh. Harsh. Yeah. Um. Yeah, it seems to be. I mean, I feel like you know, two harmonics at a time is pretty. Kind of maybe three in there. Yeah. Um. Well, it seems like when you kind of go above five, like I'm gonna add the six one in six and seven they start to get like a bit more crunchy yeah I guess it just depends on which ones you have up at one time and these are all just overlaid each other and they're not I mean, basically they're mixed together yeah of equal I mean depending on where you have depending the slider the together, can, right you know can be really yeah because you're controlling the amplitude with the slider with yeah so I mean, the frequency is the same you know, so that's ha halfway on all of them. And, you know, it's not that loud. Yeah. But I guess we, we don't have it really mixed up super high on the mixer either. Let's try uh, FMing it just to... Yeah, let's go. Let's bring up, like, just these three in the middle. We'll bring up four, five, and six just so we have a nice little sound. FM. With the 258. Yeah. Instead of getting some really great sounds. I mean, it makes great sounds anyway, but pretty versatile here. That was just in sine wave mode, and now we're in saw. Crunchy. That's the one you said earlier. Crunchy. <laughs> yeah. Can you bring up those 9 and 10? Yeah. Lot starts happening. it with itself so if we output 10 and then we use the output from 1 into FM and then turn up the FM knob that's cool so we'll do it the other way around we probably won't turn the frequency up a bit it was FMing itself so we'll use 10 to FM 1 oh cool and the slider doesn't do anything but yeah, so you get kind of just a nice, simple... Yeah, another yeah. little piece. And we can go on down the line and it'll... Cool. Yeah, that's neat. <laughs> that actually helps me understand the module better now. <laughs> like, okay, yeah, I get what's happening. It's like an auditory oscilloscope. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so those are the sliders. And then we actually have... Then you have all the... CV inputs underneath them. So we could be, um, you know, running a bunch of different like random things into it and try that. So we've got like a fluctuating random voltage. We can just, you know, put it into like three. And the black CVs are basically the, the VCA control, mm -hmm. right? And they will, I mean, you can. Yeah, so you've got the slider up so the, the base is, yeah. 
pitch down a bit? Yeah. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, I like that. This is all kind of running from a... Um, these are all getting triggered, except for the flexion, fluctuating random from the easel, different pulses coming out, and also actually some CV coming out from the um, Marf as well. Transposing it by hand. So we, when we earlier today, when Kyle and I were just playing with this, I was asking about this, but he doesn't have his 218 out. But if you have this bass pitch here, and then you plugged your 218 into that keyboard input, mm -hmm. you could transpose this. Right, because that's that that keyboard input is basically we could do it with the CV input too, but yeah, the keyboard input is kind of if you've got it matched, the bass pitch matched to your two eight. Well, regardless of what key you press on the two eighteen, it would essentially transpose this. Mm -hmm. So with the two sixty three V, we could do that with any voltage source. Mm -hmm. to point down. Yeah, maybe when we switch over here, we'll we'll run a bunch of shift registers into it to. That reminds me of somebody's music. Oh man, who is that? <laughs> it's someone from the 90s. Oh man, I wish I could. It's like right there, it'll come to me and I'll blurt it out later in this segment. Like, blah! <laughs> but it's, it's so cool to have. You know, ten different VCAs within this thing, or you know, like to be able to—that's a lot of kind of different sounds going on mm -hmm. with just control voltage, only one single audio output from it. That's kind of kind of neat. No real, like it doesn't need to run through a a two ninety two. Yeah, if you don't want to. Uh, okay, so you looked at those sections. Sorry, that was loud. Oh, I remember it, it was air. It sounds oh. like a song on that Air album with... Um, <laughs> Cherry Blossom Girl yes, or something yeah, like that? Yeah, like one of the songs from that album. Yeah. yeah. Oh, man, now I can sleep tonight. <laughs> well, I've been listening to a lot of you 90s... You were gasping for air. Yeah, I was like, what is... I've been listening to a lot of this, um, these 90s electronic acts that iTunes is, or Apple Music has been playing. Mm -hmm. So I've heard... Um, air, air is 90s, but also aughts. You get the yeah. point. I've been hearing a lot of old, older, you know, Autecker and Boards of Canada's in there. Um and that song Busy Child by, you know, oh, yeah. but, um, um, not Chemical Brothers, but just totally spacing on anyway. Crystal Method? Crystal Method, yeah. yeah. I and think once, I always get those mixed up. I do too, but yeah. they're so different. Um, yeah. Totally different. Mr. Wazo. But the point messing around with this, I'm like I'm hearing all of these different hmm. sounds, which doesn't really make any sense because none of them used anything like this. <laughs> as far as we know, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, some some might have, but. You know, lots of samplers and lots of digital synths from the 90s. Mm -hmm. And this doesn't... But I guess maybe because we're getting into some of these um, high harmonics where the that harshness and stuff starts to mm -hmm. come in, that kind of is a low-resolution mm -hmm. uh, DAC and mm -hmm. an old digital synth. That's just kind of a... This came to me when we <laughs> were messing around with that. Wow. <laughs> How, how strange. Not a, Probably not exactly what Mark Verbos had in mind. When, <laughs> you want to sound like Chemical Brothers or... <laughs> Get the harmonic oscillator. Yeah, get the harmonic oscillator. Um, okay, so now we'll go down to the harmonic scan and spectral tilt section. Yeah, now here's where things get really powerful and interesting. Yeah, because you're kind of taking um, ideas from like 
kind of sweeping the filter in a way, like with a center frequency and the the width of your bandwidth that you're um, taking over. Kind of that stuff is applied to these harmonics. So your um, your center frequency. Let me bring this back up. Did we mention that there are lights underneath? So under each slider, one to ten, there's a little light to indicate which harmonic. Which harmonic, have, and that gets it's blank to bright based on the position of the slider for the VCA. So when Kyle moved the center and chose number four, the number four light uh, turned on. Yeah. So for folks who aren't watching the video, that might be an important detail. <laughs> True. Um, yeah. Now it's between them, so they're both a little dim. Yeah. So yeah. So you've got the center frequency, and we've got the width all the way down. So it's really just focusing on one of the harmonics. That's what sounds like the 4MS spectral multiband resonator when you're sweeping that knob in the middle. Mm -hmm. So it's, you know, we've got it right on six and we can hear like, you know, there is this kind of dead zone between, you know, six is very faint right yeah. now as it's moving over to like the fifth harmonic. Yeah. And also I should note, if you turn the center all the way to the left, it goes past one. So as you can hear, yeah. there's nothing going Something on. Something right lower now. than one, but not zero. <laughs> and then, um, and then it goes past ten. So we're at ten right here, and then we go past it. Yeah. As well, um, and so that kind of can help. And different ways that you can kind of use that as the VCA in a way too, like you know, if you're just adding one CV in, it's just gonna. Yeah. So when you. If you put an, a, an envelope or an LFO in regular <laughs> parlance into that CV input, would it be like pulse width modulation where you you get nothing, and then it sweeps one to ten, or does it only? And I mean, then you get nothing at eleven, or well, let's let's try. Yeah, that. let's try that out. You um, get what I mean, right? Yeah. So I have like a. Is that nineties? <laughs> right. I have a, uh, a function generator that's being triggered by the MARF in a pattern and it's just a you know kind of set up to be like a quick down ramp yeah um and, and so i have it set to zero but i have it going all the way up so i can kind of yeah the cv and cv pod is all the way up but the center pod is all the way down let me switch the other way where i have the um uh the attack further up so it's going slower yeah upward and then so i think it is starting at one i don't think it's going zero and eleven well it does have like when there is no voltage it's not like one isn't like I yeah because well, there's no voltage but yeah. when you give it a, a 0.1 volt or whatever i don't think it's starting at zero i think it's starting at one mm. you know what i mean because then if I move the center, you know, because I can change where the center frequency yeah. is. So now it's starting at 2. Yeah. And now it's starting at 5. So you can kind of, like, that's it starting at Yeah. Well. Yeah. That's pretty cool, by the way. <laughs> um, <laughs> so then we haven't even talked about the harmonics. Um, or sorry, the width portion so we're gonna I'll go back to this five uh, harmonic and then the width has been all the way down so we're just focusing on one but as 
one harmonic, but as we move it up... It adds four and six. Yeah, it starts to incorporate. It kind of bounces over to four a little bit, and then... Yeah. I think that's because of oh, the, the precision of the center, yeah. Yeah. So now we've got three um, harmonics going. Oh, oh, oh. And then we can use the center to scan through those three. And we can make that more narrow. Or make it really wide. Yeah, it's got... Yeah, so you could modulate that from... And it starts to look like some... I'm going to put it on four, no, five. Right in the middle there, like that. Mm -hmm. And so... So it's like maybe do we even need to go like try and get the center in between five and six? Yeah, that's what I was going to say, yeah. Now, well, yeah, no, it kind of angles a little yeah. bit yeah. towards the lower section. That's close. Yeah, that, so that's fascinating. And so what's also because, you know, we can put it back into that like that 11 slot or whatever yeah. and then you can mess with the the uh the width to kind of expand down yeah. or you could go the other way and have it so when you're expand in, up. when you're at zero or something greater less than one it does go all the way to 10 when, the, when it's all the way up does it do it the other way so if you go all the way kind of yeah. doesn't right oh yeah it does fascinating and then you've got the uh, spectral tilt section, which um, it basically kind of like shifts the frequency to either um, favor more low or high. And so you can kind of have things set to where um, maybe you want that fundamental frequencies or, you know, the lower one um, more prominent. And then now as I use the width and uh, center. If I go up towards the higher, we can hear it kind of, we're now at like 10, yeah. nine and 10, and actually doesn't even go to the 10th yeah, frequency. We can't even right. really hear it. We, if we turn up the VCA, you can, but a, yeah. A little bit. A little bit. The energy is kind of not there. So it just kind of, yeah, it's an, I guess, easy way to like shift between the two, kind of yeah. tilt you know, tilts it back and forth, right? Which is probably way more interesting with CV than, than hot knobbing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so, let's see. Let's get... Um, let's get like a... I'll show this portion of it that I had fun with. Um, is if, that the morph going into the keyboard input? Uh, yeah, so we're yeah. going to get some... I'm, I'm doing air quotes keyboard input. It's not labeled keyboard. I just think of it that way because it's like the the keyboard input on the 259. Yeah. Little gray CV input. Um, so... Let's see. Here. Oh, we hear that? Those, those harmonics weren't quite coming in, but they're there? Yeah. 
That's cute. That's what you're performing tomorrow night. <laughs> Not quite. Um, So I'm having the uh, some random voltage kind of step around in this sequence, and so like right now I'll kind of turn up the oh yeah increase the width right yeah so that more harmonics come in when it, the center jumps because you're controlling the center with CV with the random voltage yeah yeah quantized random voltage so if I just had like the one up. I'll turn this off. So you get a sense of like what the yeah the sequence is doing, but if you kind of narrow the frequencies around and bounce around with them, it's gonna. I, I think it kind of like gives it a jazzy feel yeah. because it's a those sometimes those harmonics within um, this like fundamental will kind of like. Yeah, place the notes um, a little differently. Do you hear that? That super high pitch. Dee, 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 dee. Yeah, I think that? it might be like a bleed or something like that. I kind of like it. <laughs> yeah, because I do have like. There it is. Yeah. So it's a little bleed. <laughs> Cute. Very Christmassy in its own little sine wavy way. <laughs> yeah, so that's kind of most of what this thing can do. Like I said before, and I'll I'll you have it at the end of the show. Um the the kind of patch that I did using all these together or using more of the different outputs together. Um to hear what's going on. Do you want some volume? Yeah, give me a little volume there. I wanted to... Yeah. So I've limited the amount of control of center just to kind of have it mm -hmm. sticking more, but less than six. Kind of jumps two, three, four, five, six. Mm -hmm. You could also, like... the harmonic scan a little bit yeah randomize the width, the width so like it can bring a little bit so that that's that boards of canada kind of waver, wavering thing that mm -hmm. i was talking about earlier all right should we move on to the uh quantizer and shift register yeah yeah let's do it big fan of quantizers and shift registers. I have a whole bunch of them in my Eurorack setup. So I'm really excited today to spend this some time with the Verbos and Associates Quantizer Shift Register Model 263V. This module came out 
I think around 2012, to fill an interesting gap in the Buchla ecosystem. There, there aren't a lot of outboard quantizer modules. In 2012, I don't think there were any, maybe, maybe one. I'm not super positive about the history, but um, when I was doing some research into what modules provide quantization in terms of taking an input from another module, the 263V is one of the ornament and crime that you can find in the Northern Light Modular 20C quantimator. There's a quantizer in the module module format. And then some modules provide quantization internal to the module. For example, the 266C can output quantized voltages, random voltages, and the 251E quad sequential voltage source and the 252E polyphonic rhythm generator both output quantized voltages. You select the amount of voltage 1.1, 1.2, and so on. And then the 250E dual arbitrary or 250E arbitrary function generator can also output quantized voltages per step by turning quantized, quantized on and off. And then there's the 244, the Sputnik 244, which has a very, very basic quantizer um, along the bottom of it. So the 263V is unique in that it is a has um, eight quantized outputs and eight CV inputs. And you can choose the root with the left potentiometer and the scale or the mode with the right potentiometer. So in my system, I don't have a ton of need for an outboard quantizing module because my 251E, of course, outputs quantized voltages when I'm doing sequences. I don't need it so much when I'm doing sequences. But it does have a lot of interesting applications for quantizing um, sloped voltages. And that's the, the idea that I had based on something that Lionel Boucher did some, some years ago with the 263V is using a slew limiter in the control voltage processor 257E for me. I think he might have used the 255. Um, but to slew the voltage output from the 251E, send that into the quantizer and get the quantized voltages out, which make for some interesting characteristics. The shift register in the bottom of the 263V is there are two shift registers side by side, each with four outputs, a CV input, a pulse input, and a pulse output. And I'll get into the shift register a little bit later. First, I'm going to focus on the quantizer, and then I'll shift to the shift register. So I've programmed in a sequence in the 251E just to create a little bit of a melody that um, we can do some interesting things with in the quantizer. So first, let me let you hear what this sounds like um, outside without the quantization. And this is going into the studio.h dual programmable oscillator, both the left side and the right, the left oscillator and the right oscillator with no FM or anything else. They're just, just the, the pure sound, the pure waves. And the 258E, as this thing's known, is, uh, has really, really good pitch tracking on the CV inputs. So it's a great module to use to demonstrate um, the quantized voltage from the 251E and the quantized voltage from the 263V and the slight differences between them. So first, here's what the sequence sounds like. 
I um, had to turn on both oscillators there. So oscillator 1 going to the left channel and oscillator 2 is going to the right channel. So what I thought to do with that was to follow Lionel's lead and make that uh, slewed voltage. Let me let you hear what that sounds like now. And I'm going to put the 281E in sustain mode so that we can hear the um, what that slewed voltage sounds like. <laughs> so that, I mean, that's kind of interesting. Um, so what I want to do now is send that slewed control voltage from the 251E through the 257E into the quantizer. And that will, I'm going to choose the, I'll choose the Dorian mode since the um, oscillator is base pitch is set to E. And then the sequence that I created in 251E is an E minor, um, as best as it can be anyway. And so I'm going to quantize that to um, Dorian in the, in the 263V. And so I uh, will put that, turn these on, and here's what it sounds like, the slewed CV going through the quantizer. So I will just kind of mess with the settings on the 257. I'm increase the slope. Positive here. So all I'm doing is changing the values of the negative and positive on the 257, 257E. Let me shift that over to minor pentatonic. We get fewer notes because there are only five in that scale. So if I go to chromatic, we'll get all 12 notes. Interesting. <laughs> so, going back to minor pentatonic, that sounds a bit more musical to me. So if I slow it down. Let's speed it up. So you can kind of see that um, it does a good job of quantization, made that sequence interesting going through the 257E. If I were using control voltages to modulate the slew amount, then could get pretty nice um, kind of 
fluctuating or, or changing melody over time. Um, lots of interesting things to do there. The thinking about this thing having eight inputs and eight outputs, it would have a lot of use for things like the 245, 246, I think the 246, and some, some of the other modules in the 200 format as opposed to the 200E format. Not to say that it's not useful for 200E, but it definitely has more applicability to modules in the 200 format. Um, but it, it's pretty powerful and really, really, really easy to use this quantizer. I, I actually like it quite a lot. Um, and the Eurorack quantizers I have, they're menu driven. And in the case of the Disting uh, Mark IV, I have to do some pressing of knobs and things, which I don't really mind because I've got some muscle memory around that. But I liked that I could just put this in my case and I knew pretty much instantly what to do. So I'm going to um, try something interesting with the analog shift registers and the quantizer with the 258E. I'll be right back. So now that I've got quantizing figured out, I'm going to play around a little bit with the shift register using that same sequence with the 258. So it only have two output stages from the analog shift register, but I think that's okay. That'll give a pretty good idea of, of what it sounds like, of how it works. And then I'll shift over to the 268E graphic waveform generator so we have all four outputs. So what I've done is I have the same sequence patched in to the CV, now I have it in the CV input of the 263V shift register, the left shift register. I have shorting bars going from the output CV, or the output of um, output one of the shift register to quantizer input one, and from output three to quantizer input three. Then I have the oscillator one in the DPO going from output one, and then the CV out for output three through the quantizer to oscillator two in the DPO. And I have it set in the root of E and I chose a minor pentatonic. So what you'll hear in the left and the right channel is the first voltage will come out in output one and go to oscillator one. And that is uh, one octave up from the base tuning of the oscillator. So you'll hear the bass tune of the oscillator in oscillator two, because it's not receiving any voltage. When I send another pulse on the second stage of the sequence, that will be 0.7 volts sent to output one. And nothing, and that will be, or 1.2 will come out at output two, but there's nothing going, in, it's not going anywhere from output two. And then output three will play the bass pitch of oscillator two because it does, doesn't have voltage going there yet. Then on the third pulse, it will be 0.8 volts. Then the 0.7 will go to 2, and then that 1.2 will go to 3. So you'll hear that coming out of oscillator 2. So it's kind of a... I hope that makes sense. I should probably write that down as 
as I walk through it. But let me just play it for you and you'll you'll hear what I mean. Let me turn it way down. Let me start it over. Okay, I'm starting it now. So that high, high note there sounds pretty clear. So when I speed it up, So you kind of have two melodies. It sounds like two melodies going at the same time in the two different channels, but it's the same melody. It's just shifting two over for the right channel. So it's kind of, kind of like it's out of phase. And when I turn on the delay just for channel or for the right channel, So now I'm going to do something, we'll try something out that earlier worked great, but when I tried it a little bit ago, it didn't work so well, but give me, <laughs> give me a chance here. I'm going to um, slow the sequence down and start it again. I'll put it in sustain mode. Okay, so I've got the 223E going in to the, um, I'm stacked it on the CV input. trying to transpose a little bit. Okay. Yep, yeah, that's zero volts. There it goes. So what you can, I hope you can hear is that as I transpose the voltage from the 251E with the 223E, it sort of, you hear it in the left channel, and then it moves over to the right channel because it has shifted over to, to oscillator 2. So I'll see if I can make that a little bit more dramatic by changing oscillator 2's input to output 4. I think it sounds better in three. Put it back in three. There we go. Okay, cool. That that turned out a little bit better than I expected. Um, there's a, that little fuzz sound is caused by the. It's like a 
the quantizer is trying to add the right amount of voltage to make the output voltage correct, so to speak, but the incoming voltage is unstable. And so, it, meaning it, it's changing slightly, and so the quantizer is, is struggling to, um, to nail, to really dial in that voltage, so it'll have a little bit more to the um, input and output than, than you would expect. And I'm dramatically understating how that works, but um, I've discovered that happens a lot with the 251E, which outputs quantized voltages, send that into a quantizer. If I vary the voltages a little bit, then the quantizer um, can sometimes output that scratchiness. Now the verbose quantizer does a really good job of, uh, I think the, like the resolution of the quantizer uh, circuits are, is really good because the Sputnik 244 quantizer by comparison would make all kinds of noise if you put a voltage, um, if you sent a voltage that was already quantized into it. So uh, now I'm going to patch up the 268E graphic waveform generator, which has four oscillators and four outputs. And I'm going to attempt to make an interesting patch with that and, uh, and using four outputs of the analog shift register. Okay, so I have a patch set up with the 268E graphic waveform generator, which we talked about, I think in last month's episode. Um, fantastic module, four oscillators, each with its own independent pitch input. It shares, all four oscillators share a base pitch, which I have tuned to E. And so I'm gonna do two different sequences and, and change things up a little bit as I go through uh, showing the shift register with this module because it just is, um, with four oscillators, it can do a few more interesting things with the shift register. So I've got the 263V patched with jumpers going from the shift register to the uh, quantizer input. And then the quantizer outputs going to the 268E and I have the mode set to um, Dorian, and the root is set to E. So uh, what I want to do is bring in, I'm going to bring in one oscillator at a time, starting with number one, with a sequence that is very, very short and um, with, with long sustained notes, just so you can kind of hear those, uh, those notes coming in. And the, um, so yeah, the, you'll hear in the left channel, and then the right channel and the left channel and the right channel and the third pulse, you'll hear a sum of the first two volts, the first two uh, voltages. So it's kind of an interesting kind of thing. Hope you've got headphones on. So I'll bring in the next voltage here. for the next uh, oscillator, I should say. And now I'll bring in four. So you can hear the kind of a harmony there when the uh, notes are 
the intervals between them is good. Being like a first, a third, and a fifth. So if I take out... So now I just have oscillators 1 and 4. Now I'm going to press start-stop a bunch of times on the 251E, and you'll kind of hear the notes dropping off. Did you hear that? So that's kind of neat. It's kind of a good indicator of how the voltages flow through the outputs. So now I have just oscillator 1 and 4 going to L and R, so let's see what that sounds like. A little bit of a drone. Kind of cool. Okay. So I'm going to shift the to um, there we go, section D of my 251E for a more melodic sequence. And I'll go ahead and bring up, bring in all four oscillators. Shift that back to 281E, back to the transient mode, and see what this sounds like. I'm gonna put the Just simple waveform. Slow that down. Okay, I'm gonna shift back to where each oscillator has its own waveform drawn by the 282E. Okay. There we go. So it's kind of like a it sounds like a little bit of a delay because you're hearing the melody played on Ford oscillators in sequence, basically. So I'm going to go to stage three. Make that play three times. Cool. All right, so the last thing I want to do with the shift register is, so we've been done everything with pitch and that's really neat, but um, we can use the control voltage outputs from the shift register to also modulate something. So I'm gonna take the output of oscillator three and send that into control voltage, I mean, I'm sorry, into the 267E. And I'm going to do the same for oscillator 2. I'll send that to the other filter in the 267E. Patch that back in there. And so I'll take the control voltage outputs from the control voltage output from the shift register. Let's see if this will, will probably give me an input. Let me just remove the jumpers. I'd want to eliminate any possibilities of errant voltages. So it's removing the jumpers here. 
There we go. And shifting control voltage outputs just to the analog shift resistor here. Okay, perfect. Now I'll take the control voltage output from number two to the um, frequency input on one shift register, I mean on one of filter. Well, I've said shift register a lot today. It's, it's, right it's starting to get quite, uh, quite overwhelming how many times I've said that. All right. So now I have that, that patched up. Two oscillators going through the 267E with the frequency modulated by the uh, outputs two and four from the analog shift register. Give a little bit more harmonics. Let's just take out the, the I took out the non filtered ones. just to dial those in just slightly. There we go. I'll slow that down. You know, I think I'm going to switch the sequence to the one that I used with the 258. It won't sound as good because um, it doesn't have the I'm gonna quantization, but so the 260AE is gonna, it's gonna be kind of the notes aren't going to be quite there, but I'm doing that because it has sustained notes. So let's see what that sounds like. Turn the other oscillators back on. So what should what happens is the voltage output from two is modulating the frequency for the filter. And then the next time that uh, note is sent, to, when it's sent to three, that is not modulating the filter. So the filter is going to keep whatever that voltage value was. Kind of hard to get that dialed in. Yeah, that's better.
There, we can hear that a little better. Okay, perfect. Alright, I got things dialed in. Alright, now do we want to be adventurous and bring in Oscillator 1 from the 258? Alright, let's give that a try and then we'll close this out. Alright, so what I'm going to do is, okay, let me first explain, the two shift registers have pulse in and pulse out. So the pulse, in, the pulse out fires after the shift has occurred, I, I believe that's correct. So you can use a jumper bar, or a shorting bar, to connect the pulse out from shift register 2 to the pulse in to shift register 1. And if you do that, then the, the shift register is sort of, or the shifting is opposite, and that's confusing to me. What I'm going to do is take the pulse out, uh, the pulse out from the 251E into the pulse in of shift register on the left, and then I'm going to take that pulse output and patch it over to the pulse input on shift register 2, which is on the right. And then I'm going to take the CV of step 4, of output 4, and make that the input CV for the right shift register. So if I bring in the 258E, it sounds like, okay. And now play that. Trying to make that sound more interesting, but... So what's going on is the sequence is moving through outputs 1 through 4, going to the 268E, skips output 5, and then goes output 6, is quantized out to the 258E. And then output 7 is it's skipped, and then output 8 is output, uh, quantized output to the 258E. So I did say it was going to be a little dissident and cacophonous, and it kind of is. And so there you have it. That's the, the 263V. Um, lots of lots of fun. I could really see myself diving much, much deeper into the shift register in the future. Okay, we are here with Mark Verbos from Verbos Electronics. Uh, Mark, thanks for joining the show. No problem. Thanks for having me. Welcome. So, uh, so we we're just chatting before. We're about to get into this, and you've you've 
you've had this blog that I think a lot of people um, touch on when first getting into Bukla. And I kind of want to hear the story of um, how Bukla first kind of came into your life. Well, um, as, as you may or may not know, um, I'm primarily a musician myself and I started making, making music. Well, I, I started playing instruments as a child. And then by the time I was a teenager, I was making electronic music, um, you know, MIDI stuff. Um, we're talking about like 1990, something like that. I got into making electronic music and okay. at that time, um, nobody wanted to have analog synthesizers really. I mean, you know, there I was like 13 or 14 or something. Um, so just buying whatever was the cheapest things that I could get my hands on. And, um, around, I don't know what year it was, but somewhere around that beginning time, um, Mark Vale's synthesizer vintage synthesizers book came out and that Mm. was a, a, a in a way a big turning point for for me um starting to kind of fantasize about <laughs> about having <laughs> modular synths or having um specific synths because up until that point only what was being reported on in electronic musician or keyboard magazine or something actually was on my radar and if mm-hmm. if it didn't show up um in the the used section at the the music store where I grew near where I grew up I grew up in Milwaukee Wisconsin I don't know if that was known mm-hmm. um, then I wouldn't have known about it so um, so at that point then I started to you know to read about the the you know the history of synthesizers and was really excited about um, about modular stuff and so I was aware of of um Bukla, you know making the um his first system for san francisco tape music center and i was aware of bob moog and this kind of stuff but i never even seen any of those instruments at that point because yeah obviously they were extremely rare and um if you didn't if you didn't live in new york or la you pretty much were never going to come across these things at least that's what i would expect um, you know, uh, uh, a Bukla in, in the seventies was so expensive that you could buy a house in San Francisco for the same price. So, um, <laughs> it wasn't really likely that an individual would have one. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, flash forward a couple of years and I was, um, kind of concurrently, um, developing into being a, a music producer um kind of heading in the direction of of techno music but but um but also i really had my my sights on becoming um a producer of music in general like working with artists and and recording them and Mm -hmm. so were you like interning at studios and stuff well eventually yeah but I, i mean at this point you know, I'm just like a teenager, so I have no idea. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm not sure I even really knew what a producer was. I just knew that that um, 
I would notice certain names appearing on albums over and over again as the producer. And they, so if I yeah. saw like flood appear on yep. multiple records, then I thought, okay, well, I don't know what he's doing, but that's what the who I want to be, you know, is that kind yeah, of, I, I, or, I like all the sounds on these records. So yeah. yeah, yeah. Or Trevor yeah. Horn or whoever, I don't know. But, um, ultimately I, when I left high school, I went to, um, to full sale this recording school in Florida yeah. where, um, where I took the recording engineering or back then they, they only had two programs. It was either, um, recording arts or video. So, so, um, <laughs> I took the recording arts program with the intention of, um, becoming a recording engineer, because as far as I understood it, uh, being a recording engineer was, was the first step. And then, uh, being a producer was what happens to you next. Um, which is false, but the yeah. time I thought. <laughs> so, so, um, well, when I came out of school, I, I went back to Milwaukee where I grew up, um, foolishly thinking that there was a chance I could get a job in a recording studio there. <laughs> so, um, so this was like, I'd gone to school right out of high school and that program is just a year long. So I was 19, um, and living back in Milwaukee and for, uh, for the time that, that I, the one year that I lived in Milwaukee in an apartment, not it with my parents, um, I had two roommates who were, um, studying at the university of Milwaukee and took the independent study electronic music program. So they had the keys to the recording studio at the oh, university wow. and could go into it at any hour. And so, um, in that studio, they had an ARP 2500 and a, uh, EML 200 and a MS 20 and oddly a, a fair light that was in the back corner that we never turned on. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> so during that time I, I made some, uh, sound libraries for big fish audio using the, the gear in that studio. And, um, would go in with some of the stuff that I had into that studio. And one of my roommates who was actually studying at the school put up ads on the, on the bulletin board said wanted old synthesizers. And really he was hoping he was like a house DJ and wanted to make, you know, house music. And so he was hoping that he would get a Juno one Oh six or something like that. Yeah, and yeah. So one day this guy called, found that ad and called our apartment and he answered and was talking you know, to the, to the guy. And then he said, I don't know. And he said to me, I think this is, you should just talk to this guy. And the guy said, okay, um, I have a, a VCS three. Um, I was going to donate it to the university, but I saw your ad. Are you interested in that? <laughs> your, your eyes popped out of your head so i walked over to this this old man's house he had actually been the instructor at the university mm. since the 60s and he'd retired and he he bought this vcs3 at the when it was new at the same time oh, yeah. that the university bought one and wow. had basically never used it it was like under a plastic cover for you know, 40 years or whatever, 30 years. 
and he sold it to me for four hundred dollars. <laughs> <laughs> and I and I walked home carrying it. Oh man! <laughs> but um, and I added it to my my collection of uh, old synthesizers that I bought for next to nothing. But um, then I, I I this you know of course it's like sort of the dream to get this vintage modular thing, and I I knew. Yeah. I knew what it was exactly. And I dreamed of someday seeing something like this, you know? Um, but pretty quickly it, it became clear that, that a couple of things on it didn't work. And I, I, would learned a little bit about electronics when, um, well, I'm sort of a classic nerd type. I mean, I was, um, <laughs> on the math team and was the, um, conducted the band and, you know, the kind of oh. stuff. So, um, I knew a little bit about electronics, but I stress a little bit. Mm -hmm. And so I, um, I opened it up, um, and attempted to, to fix it, which, I, I knew nothing basically, but at the time I thought that I knew something. And yeah. So I, I opened up this, you know, this classic synth and proceeded to screw it up more than it uh, already was. <laughs> and then um, somebody, I don't even remember who, told me um, there's this guy who can fix this stuff. Um, here's his number. So I called this, this number to someone I didn't know and, and said, I bought this VCS3 and it doesn't work. And, um, I heard you can fix it. And he was like, uh, yeah, I don't fix stuff for people anymore. Where did you get this from? Did you buy this locally? All these questions. And he said, ah, just bring it over. I can't stand the idea of it being out there, not working. So, so I went over to this, this guy's house and in his, in his basement, he had, um, a museum of synthesizers like he had an arp 2600 and all of the eml synths and uh a synthy a putney an eight panel surge <laughs> um wow a 50 space bukla 200 which i later <laughs> learned was the one cal from, from uh, one of the rooms at cal arts the yeah, one that yeah. that Slotnik had used to make um butterflies um <laughs> a music easel, <laughs> all these things. And he, he fixed the, the VCS three for me in about five minutes so, <laughs> with parts that he had laying around. And so, um, then he showed me the, the modulars, the new modular that he was designing that was going to be a product. And this is like mid nineties, you know, like 95 or something. So yeah. no, nobody was making a modular at that point. Um, you basically had to be a fool to get, I mean, there's no business to be had making a modular. So, um, this is what he was doing. So then it became clear that, um, I was just going to more or less invite myself over to his house as much as possible. <laughs> so, Man. um, so that guy's Grant Richter. Mm-hmm. And it, I mean, now in, in the world of synthesizers, his name is, is fairly well known, but back then he was utterly unknown, but it turned out that I was already a member of the synth DIY mailing list, which was a internet classic, <laughs> you know, started in, in, 
93 or 94 or something, yeah. uh, an email uh, mailing list. And he was a pretty st- uh, big contributor on there. So this you know, became a, like a mentorship or <laughs> something like this mm-hmm. where um, he, he was making his first synthesizer that was going to be a product. The, um, at the time, he called it the weird modular, but ultimately somebody contacted him and said, um, that actually is, is my family name and it's pronounced wired. And he was like, Oh, that works too. So, so, (laughs) um, so I, I would go over to his house, um, in the, in the early days of it, like a couple of times a week. And then I moved Mm -hmm. to Chicago, which is about a, I don't know, 90 minute drive away. So I would go up there and see him uh a few times a month and mostly it was just i would you know solder wires onto pots or some uh manual labor just because he needed things done but also i could bring anything that i was because i'd always wanted to to build a synthesizer but um i feel like there are so many things that that made it impossible to go from wanting to do it to actually doing it and then seeing somebody who did it and having him act as a safety net for me made it really possible. So at that point, then I could build, you know, come up with something, build it. And when it didn't work, I could take it to him and he would sort of bail me out. And, <laughs> um, and so we did that for, for a few years. I would, um, start, I was, I felt really energized and really motivated. So I started designing things for myself and, mm-hmm. and, and having him help me when they didn't work. And, um, and, and also they kind, of kind of like, like were, were they, they modular, modular focused or, or were you? Yeah. In the beginning it was primarily analog sequencers because, okay. um, what I found in my music making was that, that that was the thing that really separated the basically the ability to make like outer space uh, electronic music mm. that was different than than basically putting electronic sounds in place in conventional music was to to get away from the idea of playing the parts on a keyboard and get more into programming so yeah. uh, and and since analog sequencers were something that nobody ever really understood. I mean, in the, in the, (laughs) the early phases of, of modulars, um, they were still trying to sell the idea of making electronic sounds to people. And they really had a hard time convincing anyone to make like, you know, (laughs) the kinds of things. So because they weren't that popular when they were new, there were hardly any of them on the used market. So yeah that was like the, the sort of, um, the, the beacon drawing me into, um, to making my own. And mm-hmm. ultimately I, I became kind of, uh, obsessed with it, with sequencers. Um, not just the, the lot of different kinds that I designed myself, but also collecting, I, I have, um, 
a lot of analog sequencers, <laughs> commercial <laughs> ones, <laughs> and and MIDI sequencers and, and whatever, but all different kinds of um, experimental concepts in, in how to interface. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but that's kind of getting ahead of ourselves. Um, so also one of the, the benefits of hanging around with Grant was, was that I got to use the synthesizers that he had including the Buchla, which I got, I mean, I had a, a, a sort of obsession with a Buchla 200, but, um, mm-hmm. I think that, that like most people, the obsession that I have with, who have an obsession with the, a Buchla 200, it's more of an, uh, kind of Holy grail, uh, you know, I dream someday, someday I'm going to have that, but I know it's absolutely impossible. Um, yeah. I would, you know, I would love to someday put my hands on that. I think uh, I hear a lot of people say things like, if I could, you know, if I could get that, I could do these amazing things. Of course, they don't yeah. really understand. I didn't really understand what is special about it without having any like time on it. Then, you know, I think that the obsession is more related just to the scarcity, but but by by being able to use what he had there and also to have uh him as a almost as i don't want to say a sounding board for like bouncing ideas off almost like a foil he's like (laughs) he's 20 years older than me and he um comes from a a background of like space rock music and Mm -hmm. um he's really he's really different then I mean we get along just fine, but I mean he his taste or his idea of what he would do with something is really opposite of mine. So yeah. um, in a way, um, him telling me how he how he used the the bukla is almost like um, like telling me what not to do because <laughs> it's, it's the way that we that we interact with things is so different. But he also was very um, invested into, to how, um, it was intended to be used and about how, um, Subotnik used it. He was really aware of, of like the, the, the techniques that were used on the, the records and, um, like the, the ghost scores, which I don't know if you know about that, but we can talk about that too. But, um, you know, yeah. isn't there like three triple envelope followers in that system. Yeah. Well, that was one of the things was that the, well, if you, if you look at the pictures from, from CalArts there, it's, well, it's constantly evolving. So it's hard to know what was in the systems, but also there are two rooms that had 50 space, 200 systems. And Mm -hmm. the one that's the more, um, the more photographed or the more worshipped one is actually the, I forget the numbers. I think the 305 is the, the one that's that the, the computer was in that was the main room, but his is actually the one from the other room. So, um, he actually has a part of the 500 computer, but, um, well, this is a really like a, deep dark rabbit hole we could get into about the, Go for <laughs> the 500 it. computer and the, <laughs> and the whatever but um basically 
Sabotnik was was running the program at CalArts and he, he set up the program. Like when they were more or less starting the, the school, they hired yeah. him to, to put together the program. And in the uh, late 60s, early 70s, um, it was almost like um, like a package deal. Like you hire a Subotnik as the professor of electronic music and he creates the program and gets the Buklas because Don Bukla was a really incredibly difficult person on, on many levels, but specifically on buying an instrument from him because um, he, uh, well, in a way, didn't want to sell them. But in another way, he was really careful that he didn't want them to end up in the hands of people who didn't know what they were because he was afraid that that their interpretation of them would be that they're that they weren't great because they weren't understood so you almost had to like um like pass a smell test with him before he would sell you an instrument <laughs> and yeah and they, were, they cost a fortune so um only really universities could afford them and um so Subotnik would kind of create this package of getting the systems, setting up the program and, you know, training the people. And, um, he was, um, since Subotnik was the motivator for Bukla to create all the instruments in a way, um, he was using during that period anyway, in the early seventies, he was using CalArts as the, almost like the, beta testing or uh like yeah. experimental grounds for for his ideas so he was moving um in the direction of basically from the inception of the 200 he was trying to get out of making modulars and get into making computerized instruments but he he struggled throughout the 70s to to make that happen because of how limited the computers were and also about how um the the conflict for for don i think was that he always thought of the 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 interface as the most important thing and mm -hmm. he he found it incredibly difficult to make an interface with the digital the computerized instruments um particularly in the beginning that that was intuitive and real time and um, that uh, a musician could bounce the ideas back and forth in a, in a way that was inspiring because even the, even the, the pieces that Subotnik did on the digital stuff were essentially written um, on paper before they were programmed into the instrument. And so it took away that idea of, um, experimenting at the the instrument patching and yeah in real time and yeah the the immediacy is kind of gone yeah at, <laughs> so at anyway this point. is way off track so he so uh in i think about 1984 something like that um uh grant had had gotten all over um to different universities in California asking them if they had any Buchla stuff and the ones that did mostly just had it like in a closet somewhere not used. Mm -hmm. So he, he was really successful in collecting a lot of, 
of Buka stuff, so much so that he convinced a guy he was in a band with to buy some of it too, because he was overloaded. Um, <laughs> and so he had that instrument that, that came out of CalArts, which yeah, had a lot of envelope followers and, um, the black knob era mm -hmm. 200 series, a 217 keyboard, uh, 246 sequencer and a couple of the 245 small sequencers, um, a whole bunch of 258 oscillators, <laughs> like five. Yeah. I think. Cause, um, Cause this is what uh, Barry Schrader made like lost Atlantis on, right? Yes. And also the, the, um, the fortune modules, the, the yeah. custom modules that were made by this Japanese, uh, Mm -hmm. ultimately professor, but, um, who went on to work for Yamaha. But at the time that Barry Schrader was there, he was like a lab assistant or something. <laughs> yeah. He made these custom modules to Barry Schrader's specs that were used in some of those pieces Barry did. And Grant has those. Wow. That's wild. Yeah. Crazy. Did he kind of like, did he implement any of those kind of things into his wired system or no well yeah sort of <laughs> okay well you kind of maybe did too so yeah, we'll yeah, get as, into that, as, a, as a side note on grant um grant's a professional um, electrical engineer and mm -hmm. so at the time that that i met him he was um designing a metal detector system for his job um mm -hmm. And he's always been a musician in his uh, spare time or in his um, in his fun time. But when he was designing the the system, he he specifically he wanted to be influenced by some of the ideas that came from the kind of greatest hits of modular synthesizers. But he specifically didn't want to tap into anything like he didn't want to take anything from a schematic that he had seen. He wanted to go back to the design phase, like back to the blank page in every case. And so in a way he, he draws from all these different things, but in a way he never draws from anything. <laughs> uh, it, um, I think that that's a, a, a noble pursuit. Um, the, the thing where I went, absolutely opposite from him philosophically was that he he really wanted to um streamline the manufacturing i think this was the the siren's call of the electrical engineer was that he wanted to make the the front the metal work from every module be the same so each module has uh 10 pots two switches uh, 10 LEDs and a field of 20 jacks <laughs> yeah. and they're all the same shape, all the same metal work with just different printing and all the jacks are at the bottom and all the knobs are at the top. And, um, this, that was an idea that he, that he, uh, got from the Aries modular that, uh, the jack field was all at the bottom and that some people really love that idea because it keeps the the cables out of the the way of the controls but the problem that i found is that each module in order to fit into this paradigm he would 
keep adding more parts. So inside of one module, like the uh, waveform city was one of his, his uh, new ideas that he hatched when he was creating this. And it was uh, an analog sawtooth VCO with uh, a lookup table, wavetable thing. And then mm-hmm. he had some extra space. So he threw in a VCA and he threw in a attack release envelope generator to, to use up more jacks and use up more pots. And then the next thing you know, you have like four or five um, unrelated module, unrelated, but like separate modules in one case. And there's a, for me, it's like too much disassociation between like when you're looking through for the jack to plug into the VCA, (laughs) you know, like at the bottom there, you know, the jack field is pretty crowded and it's like in and we're like, what is this in for? <laughs> in for know? what? Yeah. yeah. So for me, that was like a, uh, sort of like, uh, like the opposite of what I wanted to do. <laughs> and <clears throat> so to, to completely disrupt the flow of my story, but, um, the, the main thing that I wanted to draw from, from the experience when I was designing a synth was that. I wanted to to take the philosophy like what I learned from Buchla was was that the interface is the most important thing, and that in a way electrically what happens doesn't even matter as long as it supports the interface, and mm-hmm. that's totally opposite thinking from what Grant was doing with this because he was he was letting the engineering lead or the you know the um, industrial yeah. design lead instead of the, yeah. You know, the, the artistry of the panel and, and yeah. And using it. Yeah. Because my, my dream for, for, uh, an instrument was one where you could use it to perform live that you could develop enough of a relationship with it, that you could get the, the cool thing that you figured out how to do with it, you could do that without even listening. Like you could cue it up just on good faith where if you were, if you were dealing with something that, um, that is designed in from more of an engineer's perspective, it, it's hard to do that because like, for instance, in a, in a surge, they're really proud of the fact that the, dual universal slope generator can operate as any imaginable module, like as, uh, an envelope, an, uh, VCO, a LFO, a, um, yeah. a filter, a VCA or a slew, whatever. Yeah. But yep. the problem is if, you know, if you make a, if you make an oscillator that, um, that can go from one cycle every 10 minutes up to 20 kilohertz with one sweep of the control, that means that whatever you're trying to do with it, only like five per, five degrees of that pot rotation actually does anything that's useful to you because you know it has mm-hmm. so much available to it that each circumstance is going to be really um, a struggle to 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 narrow that bandwidth into doing what you're trying to do then whereas mm-hmm. um, more like Buchla philosophy would be to um, to really like zero in on what it's supposed to do and try to make it do that in the most natural way. Mm-hmm. 
and eliminate the millions of possibilities that are not relevant to you musically. <laughs> so anyway. <laughs> so, so yeah, it's definitely much more of a guided experience compared to to Surge where where yeah, where I guess like anything is possible, but to try and do it <laughs> to try and replicate it over and over is gonna be tough. Yeah. And um and to do it um like live patching uh, yeah. you know, improvised music it's it's almost impossible unless you're willing to embrace the fact that what you get might just be like clicks or you know <laughs> yeah. i mean there there are people who are looking for that but that's that's a kind of a different animal uh, anyway that this is sidetracked so uh <laughs> so anyway grant <laughs> so i got to use the the Buchla system a lot when i was working with grant and visiting grant a lot but more importantly in the 80s and 90s if anybody had a, a vintage Buchla, and they all are broken i mean they're <laughs> I mean, they're old yeah. and I mean, they were even, they weren't even that old then if you think about it, but they're, they're yeah, just 15 you know, years old. If that, yeah, they're just, they're designed like pushed to the limit, like really on the brink, they're loaded with parts and really, um, you know, just asking to have something break. So there's always something broken. And if you had that, then Grant would have been the guy that you would send it to, to get it fixed. Mm hmm. Um, because he had a bunch of it. He was qualified tech. I mean, electrical engineer, he had all the schematics. He, he knew them inside and out and he had a passion for it and knew what they were supposed to do and how they worked and whatever. And yeah. a lot of people who are synthesizer experts find Buchla designs really scary because the schematics were hand drawn and they feel like they're confusing or things are done in different ways. Um, mm -hmm. so ultimately over time, I grant would, would get, uh, somebody's music easel to be repaired and he'd open up, open it up on his workbench and open up his next to it on his workbench. And then he'd show me what it was that he had to replace or what went wrong. <laughs> or yeah. he would show me like, isn't this interesting? I have three um, 230 envelope followers here and all three of them are different designs <laughs> or whatever. You know, so I, I had quite a lot of um, opportunity to see them opened up, to touch them, to use them, to even have discussions about like what went wrong with them, this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And then it got to be um, into the 2000s era, I don't know, 2003 or four or something like that. And, um, there was somebody who, um, sent a music easel to grant to be repaired. And he said the power, he discovered that the power supply was broken and the client asked him to fix it. And he said, I don't feel comfortable working on this because it's a really old design. It's a bad power supply design. It's classic, but I don't feel comfortable working on this because these things are worth, I don't remember what he said. He, he said something to me. Well, this, he wouldn't fix it for the guy. And then the guy yeah. said, do you think Mark could fix it? And he was like, yes, that's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> so when I talked to, I talked to Grant on the phone and by this point I lived in New York. 
And mm. I talked to him on the phone and he told me that he didn't feel comfortable working on it because I think he said, because he, it might be worth $5,000, <laughs> <laughs> well, which, you know, ha 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 music is, yeah. but, Yeesh. um, I was like, I'll work on it. <laughs> yeah. so, Send it over. So it was a kind of passing of the torch ceremony where he mailed this music easel to me in New York and I fixed it and sent it to the client. And from that point on, pretty much uh, everybody who had a broken Google <laughs> sent it to me. But that's a pretty small group of people. I mean, vintage ones, 200 series, they made like 30 instruments. So... Yeah. Yeah. And, um, yeah, just not a lot of in, and plus just not a lot of individuals. And so, I mean, were you getting like universities tracking you down to fix stuff too, or I've done some of that, Mm -hmm. um, uh, along the way I made, um, friends with a lot of people who were, you know, this is like a religion or like a cult and, Mm -hmm. um, back then, the the people who had the the, the gatekeepers the, the like the guys from the oddities museum um yeah they, they really didn't want anyone to have access to any of this like they didn't want to have anybody buying anything they wanted to buy it all they they wanted to drive the value up as high as possible um and some of the guys who were not actually a part of the museum but were like associates of them were we're restoring stuff, but we're more like focused on the aesthetics and not so deeply um, entrenched in the electronics like we were. <laughs> yeah. And they're just um, trying to make museum pieces. basically. Yeah. yeah. And, mm-hmm. and got involved in, in like um, gutting out whatever was left of stuff that was um, in Don's shed or, or, um, or that was at universities that they could convince to like, let it go and then selling it at like really inflated prices to like celebrities. So, um, anyway, I, I got to be friendly with some of those celebrities, but also some of the, the people who obviously were well off financially because this is expensive stuff, but who were, um, in some cases working really working musicians like professionals who were successful but not necessarily celebrities and mm-hmm. who had a lot of the stuff like um i got to be quite close friends with um with alessandro cortini and with um reed hayes reed hayes is a a tv and uh mostly tv um composer who has mm-hmm. a lot of uh, vintage Buchla stuff and he's in New York. So we, we became really close friends and through the, through that process, um, I mean, it could almost be a full-time job just working on the stuff that he has, but, but would you say he has the biggest collection? Yeah. One of them. Uh, I've heard Aphex twin has a lot, but I've never actually talked to him. I don't know what he has. Um, yeah. I've, I've heard a lot of stories about what he has, but I don't know how confirmed any of it is. Um, Chemical yeah. Brothers have a lot, yep. but mm-hmm. I don't, I think Reed has more than them. Um, and ultimately I have a lot, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but not as much as him. Uh, uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, yeah, maybe. But 
Um, Reed, I, I mean, Reed was was smart enough to to um, to start buying synthesizers. Um, I mean, I was buying synthesizers in in the early '90s when, in a lot of cases, I was buying like a 303 for a hundred dollars or something like that. Mm-hmm. But or a, a VCS three for four hundred. But yeah. Um, but when, like for instance, in in uh, the days when I first was was spending a lot of time with Grant, I had like listed ads and classified ads and papers and stuff looking for synthesizers. And at one point, somebody called me and offered a a, a music easel to me for twenty five hundred dollars, and I didn't buy it. Oh. Because yeah. in you know the late nineties, twenty five hundred dollars seemed like an incredibly high amount of money for it. It, which, it was, yeah. yeah. But the thing is that Reed was smart enough to to buy instruments. Even he he bought them from like Chris Yodell Analog Modulars, this like a uh, headhunter basically in California who, um, who kind of was like a synthesizer supplier to the Stars and was like yeah. fam- wow. famously always overcharged for everything. But we bought Buklas from him in the 90s, and everyone told him he was crazy for the prices he was paying, except now we laugh about how low those prices were. So, <laughs> so he had the foresight to, like, to not get caught up in like passing on something because he thought it was you know, inflated, only to regret yeah. that later. You know, he just you know, he bought like a, you know, a complete system for 10 grand, and then yeah. you know, and now that would sell uh, for 100. So, you know. He's the one that's in the two bald blokes with Vince Clark, right? Yeah, Playing yeah, with the, exactly. the Marf. And he's like, oh, it has some problems. But I'm like, oh my God, an original Marf 248. Yeah, <laughs> well, exactly. And so, um, and all of that stuff um, that he has, I worked on. So that's like a, almost a full time job right there. But he was also. Um, uh, like a key component of uh, motivating me to design my own modules because in, I don't even know what year, maybe 2006 or seven or something like that. Um, mm-hmm. He was, he was telling me that he was going to try to find a 242 programmable pulser. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how many of them are out there, but I'm going to guess it's something like three Wow. Yeah. <laughs> because and that's what the, the pin matrix. Yeah. And Grant has one. <laughs> so I've used it. <laughs> but um I, I I mean to be frank, it's not great. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's very simple and um in some ways very frustrating because it's twelve stages long yeah. and it's you know simple. Um yeah. But I said to him rather than than like kill yourself trying to find that and spend who knows what untold fortune <laughs> on it why don't why don't you just tell me what your dream programmable pulse would be and I'll design that and then make that for you so we did that and came up with the concept of doing it as 16 stages and more like the way a 246 works with um uh, pulse in and out on every stage and um, six mm-hmm. rows and you know the ability to address with analog or with pulsing and so then i made one for him and i made one for myself 
And that was the concept was that it was just going to be these two. And then he posted a picture of his system, which recently, um, I was told that somebody made a t-shirt out of pictures yep. of that, that picture of the system that has the programmable pulser in the t-shirt. <laughs> but, um, you're famous. Posted, yeah. <laughs> he posted a, this picture and then, um, I wouldn't say that the off that the the orders came rolling in, but uh, <laughs> I was asked to make to make some more, and so that started the process of me making modules that worked oh. in Buchla systems, and then um, yada yada yada. Here I am, the owner of a synthesizer company. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so to, so to kind of dig into the. Um... I guess the, do you refer to them as like verbose and associate <laughs> modules? Or? Uh, I don't know how I refer to them. I mean, the concept <laughs> really started with really just that I was going to make the, like, you know, this and that and a couple of things. And then, um, it, you know, it's like a runaway train. Uh, <laughs> but it, it's, um, I, I mean, occasionally, uh, I get an email from somebody saying like, I know you don't do these anymore, but would you make one for me? I never said that I wasn't doing anything, um, <laughs> but so I still make them, but I mean, they're not, they've never been made in, in any real quantity. They're done entirely by hand by me. So they take forever. So, um, edit time now, or I have no time to myself. Um, it takes me much longer, but the concept was that I would just, you know, if, if somebody wanted one of them, then I would make it, but it wasn't like they were in production. So as a result, that means that they're much more expensive than something that the company makes, which is like, you know, made in, in quantity, you know, the, I don't know if we've ever talked about, or if anybody's ever talked about this, but the, the, um, Verbos Electronics does all of the manufacturing in house for our products. So we actually really? have a pick and place machine in our shop and yeah. build manufacture in house. But you know, to, to a pick and, in case somebody listening has no idea what a pick and place machine is, that's the robot that, um, assembles surface mount circuit boards, like picks up the resistors and capacitors and whatever, and puts them down on the circuit board, um, automatically, but setting up the machine takes to do a project takes a bunch of hours. So it's senseless to set the machine up to do less than like a hundred units. So, yeah. so, you know, yeah. it's a totally different paradigm to make something like that than it is to make like, you know, 15 of something. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That, yeah. That makes sense. Are you able to like, I'm guessing like you can like kind of save, module settings are within that machine so then it can kind of you can easily switch back and forth between when you're going to do a run of something or do you have to like sort of. start from scratch every time uh, somewhere in between those two i, I yeah. would easily go back it, it the it's computerized and the software i mean you, you can imagine that the machine costs a hundred thousand dollars so it's not like they sell a lot of them you know this is a mm -hmm. specialized thing um I don't know how many they make. Let's, I think it's something like a couple of thousand a year or something. Mm -hmm. And the software is incredibly buggy because, you know, 
these kinds of industrial application things where they don't make that many, you know, it, it's the company that made the machine makes the software and they make like 50 different kinds of machines over the last 25 years. So, so it's, <laughs> it's really, you know, full of nuance, but what happens is that you have to, the, they call, they're called feeders, the, the, the place where you put the individual components. So you, mm-hmm. you have on the machine, on our machine, there are 128 spaces that can hold feeders and, mm-hmm. In each project, there are whatever number of unique components, and then the those feeders are going to have to be loaded up to have whatever components are relevant. And then, then there's the the software is going to load in a file that knows where all the components go. But you have to program the machine to now know where each component is going to be picked yeah, up and where it's going. Yeah. And so when it, when the project's finished we can save the file, but then we pull all the feeders off and put different stuff on. So <laughs> when we go back, we have to reload all the feeders and, you know, tell the machine what all of those are. So it doesn't take quite as long to do it the second time, but it pretty much takes almost the same. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So each time it, effectively it becomes like a, like a product run, you know, like have to be, yeah at least a hundred units to even bother setting up the machine for a whole day or whatever. And then, and also after setting up the machine, then running one and building it to completion to make sure that you didn't mess anything up along the way. (laughs) It's the worst thing that can, I mean, it happens all the time that you do it, you think everything's fine. You place 300 boards and then you find out that, you know, uh, you put, uh, 2k where you're supposed to put 20k and it's on there like 14 times on each board or something yeah (laughs) i don't envy you i guess in that uh part of manufacturing but also if you would compare it to um you know the the folklore is that uh when buchla went into actually production of of the products like when when he started making the 200 series and he set up a shop to, um, to build stuff, um, mm-hmm. that he would actually go out onto, um, Hey Ashbury and, and pick up like beggars, um, and teach them to solder so that they could assemble modules because, <laughs> you know, you imagine how long it takes to build <laughs> through whole things with like, the hundred wires um you know the thing is that like if you're building electronics that have all those wires going to panel components i mean it takes forever to do it but also every single time you have the potential to screw it up whereas if it's more like automated assembly or i mean what we do at our shop is that all of the the pots and jacks and everything are mounted on the same circuit board as the the electronics parts. So if somebody's assembling, they don't have the possibility of like mixing two of the, the wires up, you know, <laughs> whereas yeah. in, in the old way, in addition to it taking forever, you also have the, the ability to screw some mundane detail up in the middle of it and make the whole thing like a labyrinth trying to figure out why it doesn't work. <laughs> so. Yeah. So, yeah, no, no good way about it, I guess. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> so um, I'm curious about the harmonic oscillator. Is mm-hmm. so was that a uh, a need or, or a design that you wanted to come up with, or was that part was Reed also kind of like <laughs> looking for that thing as well? And <laughs> well, Reed. Reed has a, a 148. Oh, he does. Yeah, wow. which I've made work. <laughs> <laughs> but um, the harmonic generator, the the Buchla module, in the world of like uh, synth DIY, synth nerd stuff, even transcending above Buchla, <laughs> there's it's kind of like the the ultimate holy grail design you know the idea of of this like analog additive oscillator it was Mm -hmm. the stuff of legend i don't again i have no idea how many bukla ones are out there but i'm gonna guess it's hysterically small probably five or something like that yeah um although 100 series stuff is generally more common than 200 series stuff but there are a few modules that um that just didn't really uh make much of an indent like like the 191 uh dual uh sharp cutoff filter you yeah. know the, the it's the a two watt or two panel yeah right. and it, i don't know how many of those there are but it, it must be an incredibly small number also because if you look at all of the 100 series systems that you see out there you hardly ever see it and as far as yeah. I know, Columbia, um, who had three or four labs with with Google systems, 100 series systems, the big 100 series systems, they only had one of that module that was in a separate box that floated around between the rooms. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that should be an indication of how rare it is. But um, also somewhere, I'm trying to find the file, but I can't find it right now somewhere i have a uh 100 series price list from the 60s oh yeah and the 148 um uh i don't i wish i could find this price list but i recently um put the the price of the 148 through the inflation calculator <laughs> and by today's mm-hmm. standards it would be roughly fifteen thousand dollars just for wow so yeah wow. that's probably why it didn't it there weren't that many of them but part of this is is related to the the economics of um of electronics because we have a totally distorted view of of this um by today's economics versus like 1960s economics because in those days uh an op amp would cost a fortune um there's a there's a great documentary about the the six people i think it was who who left um in silicon valley who left uh, whatever big company they were working for and they started fairchild semiconductor Mm -hmm. and this this guy um Robert, I think, Noyce, Noyce, whatever it is. He is the um, largely the inventor of the op amp, and he he was the genius who who was involved in their uh, creation of their original transistors and also in the first um, op amps. And ultimately, he went on to be involved in um, 
the creation of the first microprocessors too. So he was pretty much a titan in this world. Yeah. But, um, in those days, I believe that their op amp was something like eighty dollars mm. for one, <laughs> and that was in like you know nineteen sixty seven money. So <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, and by the time the one forty eight was designed, they were down to like a few dollars each. But there are like twenty five of them in a one forty eight, <laughs> and I believe mm-hmm. that the price was something like three hundred dollars. So. It, it almost seems like it couldn't possibly even have been made for the price that it was, but also yeah. that it was incredibly expensive. But um, yeah, so it, it's part of this like highest level of holy grail of uh, synthesizer modules where everybody who is like a synth DIY person or a synth collector or a synth user um, is is really like, you know, searching for one or dreaming of designing one, but there's just not a lot of information out there. And, and the, um, there are a few, I, I toyed with a few different ideas for how I would do something like that. Um, I experimented, well, let me also put another thing to bed. So there was also, uh, Don designed one that was, that was in the San Francisco Taint Music Center, but he ultimately pulled it out of the system because it, I don't know what, I guess he didn't like it somehow. Mm-hmm. And I don't know where that one is. There's one uh, 100 series brochure that has a picture of a huge 100 series system on the cover and a whole bunch of the modules that are in the pictures are not ones that were ever sold. And yeah, there's, isn't that one, there's one with like one big knob in like the middle. That's like maybe going to, Maybe it was a filter, like a low-pass filter or something like that. Yeah, and in that that system, because it's like, unfortunately, the picture, it's on the cover, like the brochure, I think. Yeah. Anyway, so the original um, harmonic generator uh, is is a mystery to me. I don't know who has it. I have a feeling maybe Aphex Twin has it. Yeah, I feel like I was there. I maybe heard that there's one at Evergreen. Um, call oh, well, maybe it's there. Or, but, but then I think maybe they sold, like they had a one, 100 system, and I think he bought that one from what I maybe heard. Um, well, he bought the um, the 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 big Marf, the, the Marf uh, yeah. 3206 that they had at Evergreen. Yeah. So it's really, well, unfortunately, the rumor that I heard is that, um, that uh, somebody um, who I will not mention um, convinced them to trade it for a, a 200e. So he bought a 200e and got that. Oh. <laughs> oh. I mean, that's like the, but for, anyway. for me, the holy grail, that thing right there. Yeah, because, of course. Yeah. Of course. <laughs> um, so that, the, the, Unfortunately, I don't have any real facts. I only have hearsay. Right. And there's a, a guy named Dan Slater who is like one of the original um, Bukla obsessed guys mm-hmm. and in the 90s. And he posted something on the Cynthia IY mailing list in the 90s about it. And he described how the one, the original one, has phase controls for all of the harmonics in addition to um, level and. Whoa whatever i don't know i'm looking at it and it has four controls for each harmonic so i don't know what they're doing (laughs) 
<laughs> oh, am I seeing? Okay, so now, I've, uh, Robert, I just sent this over to you. It's in that top case, but on the bottom row. Is exactly. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I'm looking at it. Top case on the bottom so, row. Yeah. yeah, and that top I left believe- module is like, was like maybe thought to be the like a low low pass filter. Mm. I don't know I what that is. I, yeah. I mean, the, the ones that are the two of them in the, the top middle, mm-hmm. the, the four knobs, those appear to be like dual ring modulators maybe like with, with mm. separate level controls for the two ends. Mm-hmm. I could see that. <laughs> but it, that's not something that was available and it appears in here a bunch of times. The ones, the, the keyboard on the right that has the four circles and the, the, the quad mixer. Oh yeah. That that's is in the bottom right corner. That's like those the are tutor one, right? Exactly. Yeah. And, and that, the the tutor stuff is is at Wesleyan University. Um, I did a presentation at Wesleyan University a bunch of years ago, and they have all of David Tudor's collection of stuff that he made himself. Yeah. In addition to having that, and the um, I I invited the the director of the program and um, Michael Johnson, this guy who has done a really deep dive into trying to reverse engineer all of David Tudor's um, projects. Mm-hmm. I invited them to do a presentation of the David Tudor project at the synthesizer event that we did in New York called Machines and Music. Mm-hmm. And when when they showed up to the event, they brought that keyboard. <laughs> they brought that Buchla stuff. Oh, <laughs> and they, they, I mean, they knew that I was a nerd for this, and they're like, "Yeah, we'd start be fun, but just drop this in front of you." <laughs> you can't do this to me, not here. Yeah. So that um, um, that brochure, by the way, that, it it's uh, has the price list at the end of it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's why I brought this up in the first yeah, place. Yeah, that complete system number three would be sixty six thousand dollars in twenty twenty one dollars. Yeah. Just, wow. Yeah. But but just the harmonic generator nine hundred fifty dollars, yep. it's crazy. That's wild. Yeah. <laughs> so how do you, so how did you then adapt or kind of like bring in this um, kind of sweeping or filtering um, or like the center and width control on your harmonic oscillator? Like, um, how? Well, here's you- the problem with, with the. The, the, the gaping hole in the idea of the harmonic generator is that in order to use a 148, you, if you look at the actual 148 panel, I don't know if it's in that brochure, but it only has an outputs. I know there's no picture in there. It only has outputs for each of the harmonics and uh, you know a, a pitch control, and that's effectively it. Yeah, so you got to have and like a big so You would have to have a mixer, mm-hmm. and you would hope that mixer would be voltage controlled. There was a 100 series module, the 107, that's a 10 channel mm-hmm. voltage controlled mixer, but it's stupid. I mean, it, the, <laughs> the controls that are on the panel are just input level controls. Mm-hmm. The only way to open any of the channels is with CV. So if you wanted to do any kind of dynamic mixing of the harmonics, which is the whole if if you don't dynamically mix the harmonics you basically have an organ yeah so you want to be able to throughout the course of a note be able to change the blend of the harmonics and in some way so the 
the voltage controlled mixer is is like a absolute as far as i'm concerned there's uh just a little bit more than a rumor <laughs> that don made a 200 series harmonic generator but he never really made it he made two of them as far as i know mm. one of them dan slater has and it is the circuit board from a 148 with an additional circuit board that has um a mixer mm -hmm. that has even an odd outputs but no voltage control just sliders for the mixer and it has a 10 verters cv ins that can go up and down for the pitch because i don't know how much experience you have using 100 oscillators but they're infuriating because <laughs> they have a switch to select between the front panel control or yeah. an unattenuated cv in so you in inevitably have to put a control voltage processor in front of every one of them mm -hmm. <laughs> so that was something that he repaired for this concept but evidently i have a, a little bit of of um data like handwritten notes from don about it and it kind of seems like somebody wanted some client that i don't know who it is mm -hmm. wanted to have a 200 series version of the harmonic generator and so he designed this and then made it and then never made another one mm. so he already knew that there was the need to have the mixer i mean obviously you would have to mix them together somehow yeah but to me it just seems like the most obvious next step beyond that is to have a mixer that that um automates the idea of these blend changes dynamically because if you were trying to do that with the 107 you would have to have like 10 envelope generators or i don't know i mean you, there's just no way for you to create the the amount of dynamic cvs that you would want to yeah. do what you want it's just not possible so the the concept of the scan and width or center and width it, it's a concept that comes from the the 296 uh spectral processor mm -hmm. filter bank thing because inside of that module there are 16 filter bands that it scans across and and allows you to treat it like a bandpass filter and it actually does a pretty good job of fooling you into believing that you're hearing a sweeping bandpass filter <laughs> and so that concept like grafted onto the concept of the harmonic the 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 basic harmonic generator was the concept that I started with, but but also if you've ever used a 148, you know that the it sounds horrible. I mean, not horrible. It just <laughs> if you listen to to my harmonic oscillator, the the sine waves look on a on a oscilloscope pretty good. You can still hear some graininess, mm -hmm. but the ones in the buccal are not even close. Like, <laughs> it's because, all warble. Because the, the parts were so much less um, precise in those days, it was really, really difficult to, to get those functions to, to line up in a way that was reasonable. Mm -hmm. And it's, it has like 40 trim pots in it or something. <laughs> because the, the concept... Um, if we can go way off in the nerd land, the concept is that you, 
take the the core oscillator and then you um, you just take a, the triangle and fold it in half like a full wave rectify it to to double the frequency. Mm-hmm. But in order to create the odd harmonics, it's it's like a black art, you know. And the way that it's done is with um, to make the three is to create a trapezoid or clip the tops off of the the triangle and then f- mix that trapezoid in with the triangle out of phase in the right balance to create a multiplied by three and then get more complicated from there. Basically you create like break points, Mm -hmm. but all of the, the balancing of those different signals in it is, you know, it's very dependent on matching of just so many things like, and actually the Eurorack world is like a wild west of power supplies and, um, inconsistencies and mm-hmm. modules that like you, you have no idea what somebody is going to plug your module onto like for a power supply or what else is in their cabinet that might be leaking through. And, um, when, you, when you have something like a power supply that is a hundred millivolts bigger on the positive rail than on the, the negative rail, mm-hmm. then the harmonic oscillator isn't really going to like it because mm. the, all of this like balancing is, is going to be affected by the asymmetry of the power rails and stuff like this. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's, it's, you know, it, it, it's, it's not important at the end of the day that the sine waves are really, really pure. What's important is that you're able to um, dynamically mix these things together um, to, to create um, new sounds or, or, you know, yeah. By doing this, this basic, uh, analog additive synthesis, it, it is able to do stuff that no other oscillator has done. And I suppose someday, uh, Behringer or whoever will come along and like, you know, <laughs> knock it off and ruin the, the whole like magic of it. But, um, for right now, I'm really proud of the fact that it's it's like its own category or yeah, whatever it is. <laughs> no, yeah, I mean, I think it. I mean, would you say it's also is it your most like popular module yeah. in the Eurorack? Yeah, definitely. Version? Yeah. Um, and and I'm guessing maybe for for the you've made more of the Buchla version than your other ones as well. Uh. Yeah, probably. That is a little bit harder to quantify. Um, I'd have to really <laughs> dig through. But, yeah. Um, but, but um, no, I mean, it's significantly fewer. Uh, sure. It's, I, don't, I don't know how many. Um, I really have no idea how many it is. It's, it's probably something like in the neighborhood of like 50 that I've made in okay. the, the, the Buglas, whereas it's thousands in your rack. Yeah. Um. And how did you, um, how did you go about getting like the doing the the two eighty eight um, recreation? Were you able to? Well, did you know somebody that had one, like one of the two or three? And- sort of. Well, actually, um, yes, but no. Well, <laughs> uh, now I know. I know somebody who has it. Um, well, at the time, uh, I think it was maybe like two thousand two or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, Gino Robert, who 
uh, was from Keyboard Magazine. He, yeah. He's a, a Bukla guy. And I don't know how, but somehow, and he lives in San Francisco. So I guess um, all the opportunities Bukla related that make no sense, like some random guy appears and has like front panels that were never used or <laughs> whatever. It happens all the time. Um, but he somehow ended up with the, the 288 prototype and he had not only the the complete one but he had the the front panel with no legend on it which was like the oh yeah the prototype of the prototype uh -huh. panel and he had all the the documents to go with it so whoever i don't know how where he got it from but whoever had it um must have been like the original client or whatever mm -hmm. and had all the, the information so he posted that onto the the yahoo group bookly user group like you know 20 years ago mm -hmm. and um so i downloaded all that stuff and i kind of obsessed over it but it's an interesting piece because it's it's a a bookly dead end it's like something that he prototyped and then never um, never made it really. I mean, he never made it available. It's never listed in any of the catalogs. And mm -hmm. as far as we can tell, he never sold one other than making the prototype. Yeah. Just like the other delay that he did. As far as I know. Yeah. Well, that one's an, also an interesting story, but totally different. Yeah. Interesting story. <laughs> Cause there are actually two different versions of that. Mm. Neither of which were sold, but they have the same front panel, but they're totally different inside. And I believe both of them are in, canada with oddities people mm -hmm. because they they sent me pictures of them of the insides and i have both of the schematics but <laughs> uh the the 288 um partially i think the the problem was that he realized it was completely impossible to justify making it because he used these shift registers these like um military uh, like computing memories that as far as I can tell, they, they became like obsolete right around the time that he was using them. Mm -hmm. And I don't know what they cost back then, but probably a fortune. And even if, I mean, you can't get them now, but if you go on eBay looking for them, there are these Intel serial shift registers and they generally go for like $50 for one. And this thing has 40 of them. <laughs> So, so it, be, it I think that that was a major contributing factor to him abandoning it was that it was essentially like unbuildable mm -hmm. and, and there's no way that he could make it in a, like in a way that anyone would, would be able to pay for. But then there's the other problem is that, I mean, it uses an absolutely huge amount of electricity to run all of those shift registers. Yeah. And, um, and the noise for, yeah, well, he, the, 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 um, so it's a digital delay mm -hmm. and the converters that are in there, I, um, did a presentation at super booth. Um, when I was releasing the, the multi-delay, I, I, I did a presentation where I, I showed like evolution of design. I called it like evolution of design mm -hmm. and I showed how, um, this went from being like something that Buchla, an idea that Buchla prototyped 
but decided not to develop. And then how I learned about it. And then I um, worked with his design, adapting it to use different kind, a different kind of memory so that it was possible to build something, but stuck with his converter design. And then I later adapted the converters to be something different. And I went through a lot of um, uh, like history patents of uh, Sigma Delta serial um, analog to digital converters mm. and learned a lot, including the fact that Bugla's uh, converter design is stolen from uh, a, well, the, the one he used for the, the um, two, 77 delay the the first one it was stolen from a, a bell labs patent from the same year that he made it and <laughs> the, the the 288 was stolen from a different patent from the same year he made that one so um he he uh i think that for him at that point like he didn't even take the project seriously enough to worry about stealing somebody's patent because it wasn't really going to go into production anyway. Mm -hmm. Um, but the funny part was that in that patent, um, there's a a description of the, of like how it works and whatever. Mm -hmm. And what the intention was for, for sending digital signals over a, a telephone line because it creates a single, um, a, a single bit stream of data that can be reconstructed on the other end, but it said to expect a signal to noise ratio of at least 52 dB. (laughs) (laughs) So, so clearly that, that wasn't really like a studio level. Yeah. Yeah. And you have to remember that there's eight of them. So, you know, it's compounding. So yeah, it's pretty rough, but, um, so in the process, um, when, when I made the, the, 288V, um, I adapted the, the shift registers to be um, uh, dynamic RAM and created a clogging system and eliminated all of, of that gobbledygook that was <laughs> ir- irreplaceable and incredibly expensive and used a ton of electricity. <laughs> yeah. And, and at one point, I, I, I talked to Don on the phone because somebody was was uh was really upset that i was uh making that design that you know i was stealing it from don and i talked to him about it and um his response was um you should feel free to make a a 288 then your only uh your only concern is just a moral one and i was like (laughs) he's like do you do you think it's it's, that it's more or that it's acceptable to sell people obsolete technology. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, if they want it. <laughs> yeah. I don't, yeah. That's what I always think about. It's like, I, the, yeah. S- supply and demand thing was like, not, he was not concerned with that. Like if there's people that are willing to buy it and want to use it. Yeah. 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 Well, his, his, where his head was, was that, um, it's not, it's not fair to the users for them to be, uh like trapped in something that's old, you know, like they should, they deserve to have the newest and the latest and the greatest or, you know, whatever's possible now. But, um, yeah, I mean, in, in the world of delays, I mean, if you deep dive into that, the, the 
guitar users are obsessed with BBDs, which are even older and shittier technology. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. I, so why not? I mean, I, yeah, I always kind of like equate it, like being a guitar player and stuff of like, um, you know, it's like if they only made less Paul's for, you know, 10 years or something and they stopped doing it and then they never wanted to make them again or something like that, where it's just like, not that's you, you hit a sweet spot and that that's the sound that we want. And also, do you think I, when looking at that module, like it, it seems like it's maybe the first, I mean, it's like a micro looper, but like the first digital looper. Yeah, maybe. I mean, it doesn't have a very long delay, so yeah. it's not, um, you, you can't really even get like a whole measure of, you know, like you couldn't use it to like, you know, make a hip hop track or something. No. Yeah. But at, the same time, <laughs> but at the same time, like, well, it's kind of, but I guess, yeah. Taking something you've done and then, you know, that recording and recirculating it, as I guess it says on the, on the panel, um, yeah, yeah, other it, than it, like it is tape, that. you know, like going beyond that, it feels like for the time that it came out, I, I can't think of anything else. I haven't been able to to find anything that did that at that time, even though it is um, very short. Yeah, well, um, one of the 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 touchstones for me in the process of um, of working on that idea because I from the, the time when I got the schematic for the 288 between getting it and making the 288 V was a long time. I don't know, like seven years or something. Mm. Uh, and a lot of like obsessing over this. One of the, the key factors in, in that like was, was that, um, a friend who I knew through Cynthia Y told me, when he looked at the design, he told me that I should look at Delta lab delays because they were a really similar concept. And so are you, are you familiar with Delta no. lab? They were, well, the name now is owned by like guitar center or something. So there are products out there is called Delta lab that it's totally unrelated. But in the seventies, the, the engineer behind it was, is named uh, Richard DeFiertis, and he patented a whole bunch of um, Sigma Delta converters, which basically just means uh, uh, analog to digital and digital to analog converter that converts the signal into a stream of one bit, one, one bit stream of data that's just telling the, it's just storing the information, like if the signal is going up or going down. Okay. And, and so that, that patent that was, was the bell labs patent was the original, um, Delta converter. And it is really simply just one bit shift register and a comparator. And it's just like, uh, the, the shift register is just going through, uh, like a low pass filter more or less. And it's kind of creating like pulse width modulation mm -hmm. at a high frequency. That's, you know, if it's, if it needs to go up higher to match the, the input signal, then it goes up. And if it needs to go lower, it goes down. It's really basic. But what he developed was what the, he called adaptive Delta modulation. So it had logic where, because Delta, Delta 
uh, converters are only able to go in a step that's one size. If you had a signal that was going to jump like a square wave that was going to jump from a really low value to a really high value, the delta converter could only ramp to there over the course of thousands of steps. Mm-hmm. So he implemented this logic where if you had successive steps in the same direction, then the steps would get progressively bigger. So it had the ability to, to get a wider dynamic range. And he experimented with this concept over the course of like, from like 1976 until like 1990, he kept filing more patents with more um, different uh, adaptive Delta conversion techniques. And in the Delta lab products, you see him implementing those, all of those converter technologies into the products. And he made, there's a, a really cool product that they made in the late seventies around the same time as the 288 mm-hmm. called the acoustic computer. And it has, uh, it takes one input and then creates six delays. It uses serial shift registers, just like the 288 mm. and it has six taps instead of eight. And then it mixes them together in various ways to create these like pseudo reverb signals. Yeah. It's it's really, really similar to a 288, but it's done in a way that's, I mean, it's pro audio gear. It's a rack unit. And so not, it, the, not the 50 decibels of noise. Um. <laughs> no, that's what, that's what I'm, like, I'm working for here is yeah. that this guy, uh, uh, Richard DeFutis was a genius. I don't know if he's still alive, but he actually developed ways of doing this one bit technology where he got the, I think in the patent that he filed for that is used in the acoustic computer from like 1978, it has like a 94 dB signal noise ratio or something like that. And he kept tweaking it into the eighties and all the way up to like 1990. And actually the, the, converter that I used in the multi-delay and ultimately the new version of the, the 288V is one of his designs from the late 80s that as far as I know, he never put into a design. He he created it in like 1987 mm. and he, he proposed that it would have this like 100 dB signal to noise ratio and then he just never implemented it He and he just stopped doing products. So I tried it out and I don't know if it has a hundred dB signal to noise ratio, but it's a whole lot better than the, the one that was in the 288. So um, it's kind of a miracle. Yeah. And he made other products. He might have made one in the late late seventies that could loop. That probably mm. well, it, he didn't make one that had eight taps like the like the Bugla. Yeah. But he might have made something that looped in before the 288. Okay. And it would have sounded better. <laughs> <laughs> have the, you, did you go cool back in? About, oh, go ahead. The cool thing about the acoustic computer um, is that it has the, uh, um, the, the, the series of, of all of these shift registers is, is actually um, a whole bunch of small ones and different size ones. So it has these modes where the taps are, in prime number sequences so it doesn't just sound like echoes oh. it actually is more like reverb like a a little bit like those those bbds that are supposed to make reverb that have like six taps or mm-hmm. something that that are all like unrelated 
numbers of taps. Yeah. Which you could kind of maybe do with like the, um, the preset section on the upper right hand side where you, you, you know, would, you can, you would think, but yeah, <laughs> but yeah. there were only six, there were only 16 tap. I mean, there, you could have theoretically in the, in the 288. Well, first of all, he never implemented anything with those, but yeah, um, there are only 16 places on the PCB that were access points, but you could, I guess, tap into anywhere in the, in those 40 mm-hmm. chips. So yeah, I guess you could do something with that, but the way that it was implemented in the, um, in the, the actual one, well, he never configured anything, but it, it yeah. would have required some hacking. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Did you go back and like, have you since, um, you know, since you've got this cleaned up version, um, of the multi-tap delay, or have you gone back and implemented that? Like, have you made any two eighty-eight V's with this updated stuff as well? I have. I only only started doing that like a year ago, using that new that new um, converter technology. Um, some people might think that that the the old convert there's some magic to the um, crunchy. <laughs> Yeah, technology that was there before, but I don't believe that. I think that um, the magic in it. I mean, obviously, I think there's magic in it. I mean, I made something that's heavily influenced by it, but um, I think the magic is in the the workflow or the, mm-hmm. the the way that it sort of encourages you to do certain things more than than the the noise. I don't think that the noise or the distortion is really meaningful yeah i guess except yeah to alessandro sounds like he that's a signature noise on everything yeah well actually he he has um the 288 yeah (laughs) now ultimately um and um he also somewhere i don't know where um found somebody who had two 288 panels the original ones <laughs> that were never I, I don't know don probably made five panels and you know then the remaining ones were like left laying around and you know lingering mm-hmm. so the intention is for for me to build um to build one uh two more one for him and one for me um and he insisted that it that it would have to have <laughs> the exact uh, converter to <laughs> the old one. <laughs> uh, yeah. It's a fun project for you. Someday. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, I guess I'm trying to think of where we should kind of go to now. Be, I, I, I guess I, I do want to touch on the Euro rack stuff quickly and kind of um, like, like in the multi-tap delay, you know, you've, it's definitely a departure from the 288. You, you don't have the, the kind of looping recirculate section, but then you added some um, like other DSP to it, right? Yeah. Well, I had this idea. I had the, um, well, I have a lot of uh, reverb, uh, you know, vintage reverbs and um, I have a, a, a kind of, 
obsession with um, reverb that was made with hardware units, like um, the digital reverbs, but mm-hmm. from the era before they were all microprocessors. Mm-hmm. Um, and specifically, I, I, I was or am really excited by the ones from um, Ursa Major, which are really interesting in the space station. Yeah. So um, I was re- really excited about the, or am really excited about the the algorithm because the Ursa Major space station was designed by a guy who worked for Lexicon. And then at the time in the late seventies, Lex, uh, a Lexicon reverb, like a, a 224, I guess would have been the current one at the time was like $10,000 or something. Yeah. You know, it, a digital reverb was was really just for the elite, you know, like the <laughs> yeah. really high-end recording studios. And he had this idea to, to, to kind of think his way out of, of that, like to, to make an algorithm that wouldn't cost a fortune and that would be sure not as perfectly... Na- uh, natural or believable sounding as a lexicon, but would would he be what he called a reverb effect? Like mm-hmm. allow you to to sort of experiment with reverb and with um, spatialization and and treat it more like I like perform it. You know, like a, I guess more like a like the philosophy of like a dub mixer. Yeah, where where rather than just setting this like room that sounds or hall that sounds as natural as possible, doing something that specifically is like trying to make effect. Mm -hmm. And so the algorithm has, has eight fixed delay taps and then, uh, feedback from, from at or feedback loop that has, 15 modulated delays Mm. in it so when you turn up the reverb control it's actually turning up the feedback of these modulated delays and then it's going through all of these fixed these eight fixed taps and then it's a whole bunch of presets about what lengths those fixed taps are Mm. and they're in stereo pairs Um, you have control of those pairs so four pairs and and you have a control of the amount of this feedback but that's it. So I, you know, in a way I thought, well, the eight fixed taps that we have in this concept already mm-hmm. are a little bit like these eight audition taps, but we have voltage control of, of a dynamic voltage control of the, the timing of those taps. So we don't have presets. We just have this variable control. And so in a way creating a bunch of modulated taps, just in the feedback loop would be like creating this algorithm, but kind of like neutrally inside. So I experimented with it by using a, a simple DSP, like something that's intended for guitar pedals mm-hmm. to create this um, wash of modulated delays, which is a bit like reverb. You take the, the, the last output from the 288 through this modulated reverb wash and bring it into the mixer again. And I really liked it. And I also was always really excited about, um, shimmer effects. Mm -hmm. And I had this, um, 
walrus audio descent this yeah if that's pedal that has a reverb with pitch shifters that go an octave up and an octave down and so i tried that effect in the feedback loop and i really liked the idea of being able to add that reverb effect but also add this shimmer octave up thing and so um i wanted to implement that into the design but also i'm slavishly attached to this idea of of interface and of playability mm -hmm. so i wanted to have it in a way that was like my nightmare would be having like a screen where you can select between like, you know, 128 different algorithms or like a, like a switch to select between a whole bunch of modes or something like that. Yeah. I wanted something that was as simple as you turn this knob and like this additional thing happens, but you don't have to like stop and switch modes or whatever. Mm -hmm. So, so this, so the DSP that I used has the ability to have a whole bunch of different effects, but, but I only am using it to do those, the, those delays and the, and the pitch shifting. Yeah. Yeah. Because I only wanted to be able to implement this and it, I mean, even in the experimental phase before I had it actually like built into a prototype, but when it was just like, a bunch of stuff laid out on a table connected together <laughs> the algorithm already sounded to me really amazing and when when you reach the right balance like the, the level matching of it i'm really happy with it where you can make it self oscillate and you can play the the balance between the the feedback loops and and create tones and then you can really um sort of kind of the world that you would get into by using the loop features mm -hmm. you can kind of get into that by using feedback and yeah that and evolve the, the feedback with the sliders um, and... the runaway feedback like <laughs> evolve it with changing the the delay time and the you know, amount of the in the mixer yeah that's really cool i mean because i love that section of the module but that yeah that makes sense you can kind of still have that and i love how you put um the envelope followers out for every tap too. I think that's really cool. Yeah. Cause it's so interesting if you have a, a sequence that has, um, that isn't just like 16th notes all the time, but it's like, you know, notes that are happening sometimes and not notes happening other times. Yeah. How patching those envelope followers into the, to the delay time, actually depending on which one of the taps you're, you're patched in, you, you get different, you know, the, it really changes the nature of, of the effect. It's a, it's a totally, um, like different paradigm. I, I really, yeah, I, I'm really proud of that module because it is, it, it deals in several ideas that are not represented anywhere else. And that's mm -hmm. my, my dream when I'm designing something is that I'm going to, um, you know, create like a one of a kind, uh, paradigm of some kind, you know? Yeah. That, yeah. Can kind of make you stand out. I mean, I definitely think, you know, even though you're pulling from inspiration for like the harmonic oscillator, um, I don't know. It just seems like that's a, a very pinnacle, uh, Eurorack module. 
And yeah, whenever <laughs> whenever my Eurac friends talk about delays, I'm like, that multi-tap delay, get it. Um, so what's your, I guess, what's your relationship to like, to Buchla now? Because I mean, you obviously, you know, you obsessed over it for, for years and years, and then it transitioned to being a, a business in another format and you moved and everything uh, to make all that happen. Um, like, do you, yeah, are you still somewhat obsessed with it? <laughs> um, well, I'm obsessed. Uh, as a company now, no, I'm not obsessed with it. I mean, it's, sure. it's just a company. But, um, or the plane, I have like, a, a really using a complicated relationship with this, uh, um, because, um, like I said, I have a lot of Buchla stuff, um, but I feel like the, the, the thing, the thing that I got from Buchla, from, from Don Buchla isn't that's most valuable isn't any module it's the 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 understanding or the the vision about like what this stuff could be or like how it should be so it i I can never stop being obsessed with with (laughs) the the philosophy or the the design um particularly like in a kind of historical window you know like what we talked about before about like what this cost at the time or why this decision would have been made Mm -hmm. um that's a huge part of this discussion for me because you know so many of the so many of the things that i i mean i'm still a musician you know so i have instruments from other manufacturers but pretty much all the ones that i want to have are these like special blips like these moments when when somebody designed something that like really you know changed like was like a paradigm shift or that really changed something or that was really special maybe it wasn't even popular i mean in a lot of cases the buku stuff you know didn't succeed it just was really you know really like visionary Mm -hmm. and so that you know in a lot of ways like owning like a you know owning a 259 is in a way like you know like a being like a curator of like a historical society you know it's like <laughs> this massive this massive um turning point in the design of, of instruments because so many things are are influenced by it or copying it you yeah. know and so that will never go away for me it's the the book stuff is the most important stuff historically to me because it changed the way i mean it created the way i think about synthesizers in a way <laughs> yeah but um but the the state of it now i mean the you know the company's been sold a couple of times and there was a lot of like controversy like in the family about like the nature of the sellout and you know the fighting about you know like who deserves the right to this and what Don wanted. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I know that he didn't want, he didn't want to reissue anything and he didn't want to, um, he didn't want to adapt things. Like he, 
I feel like he's turning in his grave when they make like, um, like a Euro rack adaptation of the 200 because he in a way didn't even care about the circuit design. What was like really important to him was that the, the panel was never changed or mm-hmm. that it didn't stop having different connectors for the, <laughs> for the audio and the CV, you know, like all the things that he held dear, they're just like crushing those things to, to like join the market, you know? Yeah. And so in order for me to really process any of that, I, I don't know. I just like try to like, just keep it at a distance because they can't, change like they can't take away the how how it has been yeah like the, how the ride has been for me you know mm-hmm. and so you know it doesn't really matter um but i never had the, the the relationship with the 200e that i had with the older stuff i feel like um because it's computerized it became kind of unrepairable mm-hmm. so you know, my connection, you know, like, um, you know, I, sometimes people have contacted me with something 200 E that they broke and they want to see if I can fix it, but there's really nothing I can do. It's like, you know, reflash the firmware or something. <laughs> yeah. uh, so, so it, in a way it's just, I'm, you know, it's disconnected for me in that way. Yeah. Um, and you know, it was his, it was Don's, plan like when he was more or less like convinced to to re-enter the instrument market in 2004 or whatever um part of it for him was that he would only do that if he if he could make something new and try to like move it forward which i feel like he did but in a in another sense like the the magic the magic of what it was you know in its original i you know incarnation was lost because I mean, part of the funny thing about vintage synthesizers is that they were designed at a time when most of the music that we now make with it didn't exist. So, so many things about the way that they were designed don't make any sense for us right now. (laughs) Like, you know, like the, the idea that the 100 series doesn't have attenuators and on any of the CV inputs, it, it just seems like, insane to, to <laughs> yeah. like, why would anything be made that way? <laughs> but you know, at the time they had no, they had no experience. They had no reference points. So they didn't know that yet. Mm-hmm. And so some of the magic of the, of the instruments is the fact that you're struggling against this, like, um, time capsule. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's not that interesting if everything just is the same. I think that that's partially what attracted me to Buko in the first place too, was that there's like everybody else, you know, like the way that everybody did it and then the way that Don did it, you know, and that, that frustrates people, you know, like there are, there are, um, real engineer types like Paul Schreiber from synthesis technology, who's able to design something you know, an oscillator that's will stay stable within like you know one cent for a hundred years <laughs> but but that's it, really not relevant like, musically and so somebody like that just like hates bookless designs because they aren't like that and mm-hmm. you know that in a way like 
is what appeals to me about them. You know, like behind the scenes is like this like ar archaeological dig that happens when you open the module up or um, the, the like one of a kindness. The fact that a lot of times you'll, you'll have the same module, like two different ones on the workbench next to each other. And they, they have different like kludge mods inside yeah. of like one 292. There might be like different mods to different ones. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you know, we've talked with like Mort Sabonik and, and Suzanne and, and people of that era, but it's, it's good to talk to you that, um, I think like us, like, you know, maybe we're like a, a, a generation behind of like when you were so obsessed with it and in the thick of everything, it's, it's, it's great to hear your perspective and that, uh, um, yeah. that, yeah, you're still kind of using that philosophy in, into your own designs. Well, I had the, uh, the opportunity to, um, to, to talk with Mort Zabotnik quite a lot. He, um, the, the guys who are making the documentary about him yeah. brought him to my, my, um, studio in New York because they wanted to have video of him patching on a vintage Buchla and he doesn't have one. So they asked if they could bring him to mine and there's some great footage that they made of him patching my bugla and talking to me, but also he stayed at the, at the space for like two more hours talking to me about like telling stories about back in the day. And wow. it was really, really incredible. But, um, he really opened my eyes to a lot of things about the development process, about how they had, you know, they had no idea what they needed to do or, you know, what modules would even be included. Mm -hmm. And he said that the Don um, printed or drew front panel, like hypothetical front panels for modules and gave them to him. And he sat listening to music, um, like classical music, and then trying to figure out how he would make sounds that he heard using the modules that he had. And anytime he got to a point where he couldn't imagine how he would do it, then he would tell Don, we need to have another module because we need to do this. <laughs> And wow. it just blows my mind to imagine that, you know, like how you would even imagine doing a patch without ever having patched anything yeah. or that you, how you would, um, you know, go through it. He said he had like a year or he was doing that. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and then somehow I, I said, and nowhere in that year did it occur to you to put attenuators on the inputs? <laughs> He's like, no. <laughs> but, but, but I mean, obviously, like, we're just spoiled and we, we have no idea what it's like to, like, you know, dream this stuff up out of thin air and, and you know. Yeah, be the tip of the spear of the whole thing. I mean, yeah, it's just, yeah. and then, and then for like 50 years to pass only or more, uh, only to be like talking to somebody and like, still, he still has like the enthusiasm and he still, he still really believes it. And he still wants to like go out and evangelize the concept. He's not, he, you know, he's not interested in evangelizing the instrument, like the, the way that, yeah. you know, we all want to like obsess over the instrument. He wants to evangelize the concept of like, creating music that's intended to be electronic and creating an instrument and not like trying to 
bend over backwards to use a tool to try to create something, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. like this whole idea is, is really, is relevant and never will go away. And, um, and I have a huge amount of respect for him for having like dreamt that up. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's wild to think about. It was, it was amazing to, to talk to him when we did last year and yeah, it seemed like he had Don kind of just on like, just doing modules on demand like later on of like yeah i need to do something with a microphone in my mouth and envelope follow here you go (laughs) wild yeah (laughs) all right well um well yeah thanks again for coming on the show and um and uh yeah maybe we can have you back sometime there's still a ton of stuff i want to pick your brain about okay i'd love to same here <laughs> Thanks for having me. We'd like to thank Mark Verbos for being on the show today. For more information about Verbos Electronics, check out verboselectronics.com. And you can also visit his Bukla centric blog at buklatech.blogspot.com. Check out our friend's podcast, Tim Held's Podular Modcast, Jay Ryan's The Deerhorn Podcast, and the Galaxy Electric's Cosmic Tape Music Club Podcast. If you'd like to help support the show, we really appreciate it, and you can do so through Patreon at patreon.com slash sourceofuncertainty. And you can still get your Source of Uncertainty t-shirts at sourceofuncertainty.threadless.com. You can find out more about the show or contact us through our website, sourceofuncertainty.audio. We'd love to hear from you. Find us on Instagram at Source of Uncertainty and on YouTube. Until next time, Happy New Year. Happy, Happy New Year 2022. Here we come. <laughs>